So I thought I was the queen of Airbnb. Check the profile. I visited all the places. However, how can I truly be a queen if I have never been a host? Didn't even think about it, y'all. It's time to think about it because my place is cute. Why not share? I know. I got you thinking about it now. All right. Well, don't think about it. Be about it. Find out how you can be a host at airbnb.com slash host. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this is a special episode of Questlove Supreme, as all episodes are special episodes of Questlove Supreme. Now, seriously, for longtime fans of the show, uh, you already know like how nerdy and informative we are, or at least, or at least that we strive to be at least in putting you on game. Uh, this is probably why our guest today is the perfect example and know-how, um, having one foot being a, a, a well-effective suit in the business while equally having his other foot deeply rooted in creativity. Um, it's, it's really rare to meet someone on the other side of the camera that's as much of a, of a creative as artists are, but still in the mode of being a suit. Um, he is the president of Live Nation Urban. Um, and as a business manager for the last 20 years, he's literally guided the careers of a bajillion acts from uh, Jill Scott, Scott Storch, Lil Wayne, J. Cole, Nicki Minaj. Uh, Nicki Minaj, even a, a certain uh, unnamed presidential candidate slash nuisance, um, <laughs> not to mention uh, Philadelphia's finest, the legendary Roots crew. Hello, hello. But, you know, pretty much if you've been head scratching for the last 10 or 15 years, wondering how in the hell does Questo, uh, how can Questo match a triple platinum Artists going buck for buck with only a single going gold inside. Mm. Uh, this man oh, is, pro- is really fully responsible. Uh, he can answer that question because Lord knows I've been in the game since 1992, and there's not many of us left here still swimming and 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 thriving, if you will. And we owe that to our guest. I promise, no inside baseball talk. This is Super Manager Sean G to Questlove Supreme. Yes, sir. Oh, thank you, brother. Thank you. I, I, I'm waiting for my Suprema 
Yo, yo. Nah, nah. Don't do that. <laughs> I've been practicing. I've been practicing this last nah. night. I had something fine to tell you. Oh, nah, shit, we, can't, we can't do it on Zoom nah, no more. Nah, we can't nah, do it on nah, Zoom nah, no it's more. It's COVID-19 edition. But if we get a feature nah. about it, I forget Sean's rap name. I'm like, if we can get a feature, then, you know, break it down. His rap name was Sean G. I think it, that's what it was. Was your rap name Sean G? No, he was oh, MC. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if Sean can uh, tell this <laughs> Please tell let's 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 you can start there. Tell the story. All right, yeah, no. Uh, Sean G's rap name was uh, MC Two Cool Mellow. Uh uh-uh. uh Cool Cool, oh, cool, me- wow. cool Mellow G. Cool Mellow G. Oh, That's a wow. lot of words. Yeah, Sean Sean is really responsible. I guess you know. I mean, it's no secret. Sean and Tariq are cousins, and it I guess a secret, actually, a lot of people don't know that. Right. Okay. <laughs> Again, no inside baseball from Questlove. Yeah. I'm treating you like a regular ass guest. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and so I guess the the legend is that the the sibling rivalry nature of their uh, of their childhood, you know, Sean was like the star of the family because he had a 12 inch single uh, <laughs> that was popping in Philly, and you know that that really lit a fire into Tariq. Like, you know, wait till they get a load of meat, like that right. that sort of thing, and that's. You know, so Sean is is responsible for really putting the fire under Tariq. Hold on, uh, uh-uh. uh, I see what's yeah, about to happen so, here. Go ahead. Okay, I'm about to say. So nah, we're the Sean yeah, so, G remix. So, yeah. so, 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 so <laughs> Tariq and I are cousins. Black Thought is is, is my cousin. Um, we were sort of raised more like brothers because his mother was my first cousin, so he was my second cousin. But we were obviously around the same age range, and um, you know, his mom. You know, he used to always stay at the crib. Like my mom was the was the aunt, was the South Philly aunt who moved to Mount Airy, um, where mm-hmm. all of the uh, the entire South Philly family would come up and hang and drop their kids off. Um, and Reek was always at the crib, always at the crib. And uh, from the time we were four, five, six years old, we were super competitive on, in everything, right? Um, whether it was riding our bikes whether it was drawing, like Tariq is a super dope visual artist. And, you know, I'm the older cousin. I'm two years older than him. So I, I, especially in those, at that time, when you're younger, two years is a big difference. (laughs) So I was able to muscle him. I was able to, you know, verbally muscle him, physically muscle him. Like, yo, so, you know, we would have drawing contests, you know what I mean? And we judge each other's picture and you know his picture's looking super dope and mine's looking like stick figures but I'm like I won I won I, you know so you know I used to always be able to frustrate him in 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 different ways and um music was another passion of ours like we you know grew up you know I got my first record that I bought was you know the the fat boys uh butter stick them you know from sound of market you know brought it up to the crib reek was at the crib you know we're playing a record so you know a lot of the experiences that I had being the older cousin, I would come back and and explain or talk to him or uh, about it. And he would sort of live vicariously through me. Um, and then, yeah, it got to a certain point where, you know, I started rapping and and I started to get a rep in Philadelphia and um, used to travel around the city and got a record deal, quote unquote, um, and put out a single. Um, and at the same time, you know, Reek was always an artist, you know, whether it was a visual artist, whether it was a poet, a, a, a writer, a rapper, you know, a singer, he could do it all. And I got to a point where, you know, I also played basketball in high school. 
and um, I had what a record out. I was shooting guard. I had a record guard. out, and I was on the basketball team. Yeah, I was about and to say, you say please play basketball then. Um, no, nah, like. no, nah, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. But, but basketball, oh, took all me, the basketball took me away from, from hip-hop. Like, basketball wow. took me away from Because it was like I started getting college scholarship offers and things like that. So I wow. stopped. Wait, you I were that good? Back. Yeah, I, I, got, I got scholarship division two. I mean, I wasn't... I, I didn't know that you were that. Villanova or, or UNC <laughs> nowhere. But, you know, I got, I got a college scholarship. I got the ball. Like, yo, Google me, dog. Like I got oh, this is uh, this is gonna be dope because Amir, meet Sean. No, this is like no, that's the thing. Like I'll send you some clippings. Like you know, I don't know. Eleven for twelfth grade grade life. So so wait, can we twelfth grade year? I put numbers in. So wait, Sean, you fast forward it. Can we take it back? Like take it back to like the kind of house that you grew up in. Like what your what your parents did and oh, absolutely, absolutely. We can start there. We can start there. So so um my entire family on my mother's side. I was really close, you know, to, I, I, my mother and father was in my life, but uh, my mother raised us, you know what I mean? It was a, a household where, you know, my father was in and out, you know, he was in my life. I'm not, I'm not the one that said, I didn't have my father. He was in my life, but my mother raised us. She was the, she was the visionary. She was everything. And my mother grew up in the projects in South Philly, um, Fifth Street Projects. My, I have three siblings, 13, 13, 14, and 15 years older than me. So they're much older than me. Oh, wow. They were, they were born in the projects in South Philly. Um, my mom, uh, she dropped out of high school in 10th grade. She was pregnant with my sister when she was in 10th grade. So she dropped out of high school in 10th grade. Her and my dad got married. They had two more kids living in the projects. Um, my entire mother's side of the family is from South Philly. Fifth Street Projects or 7th Street. If you know South Philly, it's 5th Street or 7th Street. Um, and you know, that was the sort of pre-shown existence was all South Philly. Um, my mom was a hustler, you know, she worked two, three jobs. She saved up, she bought real estate. Um, and her dream was to get her children out of South Philadelphia. Um, and she did that. She bought a house in Mount Airy and, um, my closest sibling was 12 years old and they moved them. We moved, they moved to Mount Airy and I was born in Mount Airy. Um, so I, I was born, um, on Sharpneck street in Mount Airy, uh, with my entire family living in South Philly, uh, for the first six years of my life, because my mom was working a couple of jobs. My dad was working, you know, and my kid, my brothers and sisters was in school and we was grinding. I, they couldn't keep me. So my first six years of my life, I lived in South Philly with Tariq's grandma. So until I became, until I was able to get, become school age, I stayed during the week in South Philly with Tariq's grandmom and my other aunt who lived like two doors from each other, my aunt Minnie and my aunt Blanche, until I turned six when I was able to go to school. That's when I moved to Mount Airy with my mom and my family for the entire, you know, all week. Um, so that was sort of my, my early existence was jumping between South Philly and Mount Airy um, during the week and then, you know, sort of staying with my parents uh, and, and my family on the weekend. Which at the okay. time was like I, the hood and the burbs, right? It was the hood and the burbs. It was okay. absolutely one thousand percent. This was this was Mount Airy at the time where there were white people there. You know what wow. I mean? It was it was, <laughs> wow. it was it was predominant. It was predominantly white when my mom moved there. I mean, now my you know that that doesn't exist, but that's that's the Mount Airy that we moved to um, when it's predominantly white. But again, my existence until I became six or seven, when I, until I became school age was still in South Philly because. My mom and, and dad didn't have, you know, didn't have no home health care or, you know, kid 
<laughs> money money to put me in some sort of a some sort of a you know Take care. care. Yeah. Wait. So I have a question. Tariq is going on record uh, to tell the story, but were you there in South Philly during the infamous fire episode? So the fire episode. Um, all right. So I moved when my mom moved from South Philly. She moved to a house on Sharp next to Mount Air. That was the house she saved up. You know, she saved two jobs. She bought that house. Again, my mom was a hustler. Let me tell you one more thing about my mom. My mom was deaf. So she lost her hearing at 16. So oh, she wow. dropped out of high school at 15, lost her hearing at 16, and had three kids by the age of 20. Um, but she was a hustler and, and super smart and, and understood how to make moves and, under, and had a vision for her family. So she got us out of South Philly. We moved to a house on Sharp Neck Street. We were there for about, I think, four or five years. Then she saved up and bought another house on Hoarder Street, which is the street around the corner, mm-hmm. and kept the Sharpneck Street as a rental property. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So we moved around the corner, kept the Sharpneck Street as a rental property. One of the first tenants in that Sharpneck Street property was Tariq and his mother. <laughs> so gotcha. the infamous house burned down story was the house that my mother owned. Oh. And it was in Mount Airy, not 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 in not in South Philly. So the story is Tariq lived in this house. Tariq and 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 his mom and his brother lived in this house. I was over there. <laughs> I was there. We were hanging, we were playing, we were being cousins or whatever. And then I bounced. And we were playing. I don't know if y'all remember these little green army men. Yeah, the little, yeah. yeah. That the was our, that joints. was our thing. That was our thing. We used to set them up all around the crib and you know what I mean? And again, I'm the older cousin. I'm like, wow, 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 I killed you, I killed you, you know, I won. But um, we, 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 you know, we got into it, the game, and I bounced, and he continued playing. Um, and, you know, evidently the story is he found a lighter, and, you know, the Army men was, were, were stuck in one particular position. You know, that's the position you bought them in, whether they're mm-hmm. on their knees shooting or on the ground shooting. Um, Tariq, you know, being the intelligent kid that he was, he said, I think I can, if I burn this Army man, I can change his position because it's going to be, you know, it, right, it turned to wax. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he he clicked the lighter, old school lighter. You know what I mean? Clicked the lighter, was burning the army man. Of course, the lighter got hot and he flicked the lighter down. Um, and before you know it, you turned around and the curtains is on fire and he runs downstairs and tells his mom and then the whole upstairs is on fire and then the house is on fire. Um, so yeah, that's Damn. the that's the that's the that's the ultimate story. But yeah, Amir, the, the house that the house that caught on fire was actually my mom's rental property. Oh, okay. Mm, how those ladies? I thought you were in that house. Okay. Mm. Is that how no, Tariq tells that story? I was in it early in the day. <laughs> well, Tariq tells the story that he just ran downstairs like, <laughs> like, <laughs> yo, you smell something burning? Uh, no, <laughs> not at all. Like, <laughs> that's Damn. what it happens. So when you're um, I the question I had just uh about your mom when she lost the hearing, did yeah. you learn how how to sign to that? Like how did y'all? That's communicate? the that's the the crazy shit is. So here, so let's you know again unpacking a little bit. So my mom lost her hearing at sixteen. Her sister Tariq's grandma, it was hard of hearing from the time I knew her. I mean, she could hear when you like yell. Mm-hmm. Um, our aunt Dot was deaf. Dot had two kids that were both deaf and my middle brother was deaf, you know? So we had all of that in the family and 
And I just don't understand why I don't know sign language. You, you know why? You know why? Because my mom didn't learn sign language. My mom read lips. Wow. You know what I mean? My mom okay. never learned sign language. She and, and what I did, I was her communicator. So my, my early business days was while she was doing and building her real estate business, you know, mm-hmm. I was this eight-year-old on the phone translating with the electric company or translating with the contractor like, mom, he said it's going to cost, you know, $600 to put this mm-hmm. hot water heater in. And she'd be like, Sean, get the fuck out of here. Tell him it don't cost more than $400. And I'd be like, uh, sir. And she'd be like, oh, I heard her. But tell her we can do 450. And I'm like, mom, he said 450. She's like, no, 400 and that's it. You know, okay. Four. So I learned my first sort of negotiating and and just handling business and understanding the rhythm of those conversations. Because business, that's where it comes time, from. Okay. I was about to say, yeah. Eight, eight, nine, eight, nine, You've been translating from day one. Yeah. <laughs> eight, nine, ten years old with my mom handling buying houses, buying property, negotiating with contractors. I was the one doing it because she couldn't hear. So she never really learned sign language, but she obviously knew how to communicate. So I think because of that, I never learned sign language. What was the height of her number of properties at like her height? Um, I think we had, I mean, she used to buy and sell. So it was never like a, a buy and hold, like, oh, my mom had 50 properties all over the city. It was, it was a buy and sell thing. Um, but I mean, I think she probably, you know, across my, through my high school years, it's probably like 10, 15, you know, properties around the city that she's either bought, held, sold, whatever. Are you still in that business or have you just let them all go? No, I, I, no, I still have, I still, I still got some, some property in film. You know, I'm still collecting some rents. I'm still collecting some rents. <laughs> oh, great! Because that'll come in handy parents? in case some some shit happened to me. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> are, uh, are your parents? Are they still alive, Sean? Uh, my mom passed away um, young. She was 64 when she passed away. She passed away 15 years ago. Uh, my father's oh, still alive. Yes. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So um, you also attended Millersville, correct? Absolutely. All right, so University. I got a Are you the one that introduced Malik and Tariq to each other, or? Yes, it was. So not that you're so, asking this question. I'm sorry. So <laughs> it was me. Um, it goes back to me and Tariq being competitive, right? So, like yeah. I was saying, um, basketball took me away from hip hop. Like I, you know, you you weren't making no money back in the day. You, you know, I was doing shows at the Y on 52nd Street. And, you know, that was my travel. That was right? the House the, of the, the Y circuit. I did the Y on Christian <laughs> down South Philly. Why on Fifty Second Street? You know what I mean. I always wanted. I always wanted to be Jazzy Jeff's MC. Like that was my goal in life, right? Who so, was that record deal with, Sean? <laughs> um, it was with a company called Payhill Records. Okay. Um, with uh, oh, the label B. was the label was a joint venture between MC Breeze and Balali B. Um, again, where is all right? So for those that don't know, like Balali B is like mid hip hop period, like between eighty five to about. 91, Blowy B was like a legendary Philadelphia label CEO. Like, what was I always heard his name, but was he like our puppy? Blau was an artist. So it, it's funny because the, the, the label was, you know, this. So his dude name was Jim Hill. He was like your traditional, you know, corporate guy, non musician, non, you know, probably what, what, y- what y'all thought I was when you first met me. You know what I mean? Like corporate suit, flat <laughs> shoe, no, creative, no creativity. So it was his label. 
he did a deal with MC Breeze, who was an artist, discombobulated Bubalator and, 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 you know, all of that in Philly. Right. Breeze did a sub deal with Bilali B, who also was an artist. So my label was run by two artists. Um, and so it was Bilal, like a production deal with a production deal? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, where's my royalties, dog? I'm about to I'm about to hit you off for that. But um, but yeah, so 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 you know, I had that, then I start playing ball, colleges start calling, I'm thinking about life. I'm like, let me take this college scholarship. You know, I stop rapping, um, and I start playing ball. So I go up to Miller's, but I'm still, you know, you still rapping, you still freestyling, right? You still in the car mm-hmm. beat, come on, you still you never stop fucking rapping when you rap. Um, and you know. I come home Thanksgiving of my sophomore year and, you know, Reek's over the family. We have our Thanksgiving dinner, you know, we're in the basement or whatever. And me and Reek always battle. We always battle, always used to battle. And when I was younger, you know what I mean? I would kill him. I mean, yeah, I would kill him. He was younger. I would muscle him, right? Like, yo, I, even when I lost, I won. But he's just start getting fucking better. It was like right around the time he, he met you and we were like, he just started getting better and better and better. And when I came home from college, um, we was in the basement. He was like, yo, you want to battle? And I was like, you go first. And he was like, all right. And I don't, whatever he said, I was like, oh, no, I don't rap no more. That shit's for suckers. You know what I mean? Like, I ain't doing this rap thing. I said, but, but listen, but I said, look, you might be good. You might be better than me, but I'm playing ball now. I said, there's this dude up Millersville named Malik. Like, yo, you can't fuck with Malik B. You can't. He was like, who? I was like, yo, he's from Philly. He's from West of Wayne. You cannot touch Malik B. And, you know, that was it. That was it. That was Thanksgiving dinner. I said that to him, and that was it. Fast forward. He's a senior in high school at this time. Fast forward. Him and a couple of his homies from high school end up going to Millersville. They they ended up, you know, applying and getting accepted to Millersville. They go into the summer program. Um, You know, I'm up there working in the summer. The first weekend that they're up there, I go to the, you know, off-campus party or whatever, and they're like, yo, yo, I just met your cousin. Your cousin go here? I didn't know you had a cousin here. I just met your cousin. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's all good. He's like, he's in the kitchen. I'm like, what are you doing? He's back there rapping. And I'm like, all right, cool. So I walk in the kitchen, and it's Tariq and Malik battling. And Malik says to me, like, yo, your cousin came in a party and asked who I was. So Tariq, in his mind, you know, from the time when I said, yo, you this kid Malik in Millersville, you're not better than him. It was like a missile. He was like, let me find this kid Malik who Sean talking about. And from that, they literally battled the entire. It was like a two and a half hour battle, just back and forth. And from that point, they were bonded, you know, from a hip hop, from a rap perspective. That was that's when the the the, you know, that side, that portion of the roots were formed in that kitchen that summer in Millersville University. Wait, I. There's the question you you'll be the perfect person to um, to answer because normally our guests are New York uh, based guests and they always have a Latin Quarter experience. However, the Philly Latin Quarter was a spot called After Midnight, After Midnight. and I've never had a guest on the show that can really explain why the After Midnight was so important. Even though I'm of age, I was not allowed to go to After Midnight. What was what was it like in there? Now, I know After Midnight's building as the Spaghetti Warehouse because right. it shut down, but like what was was the After Midnight the the pinnacle or the top place where you could see hip hop shows at that time? 
was that our house of blues? Was that our, or was it the 52nd street? Why? Like where was Philly besides block parties? Where was Philly in terms of seeing a show that wasn't at the spectrum? Right. So there were sort of two levels to it. You know, you had your sort of, I'll call it the local regional level, but for certain shows, you still had some national acts, but that local regional level, which is mean, which means you can on any given Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, you can go to a party, right? Um, you had the YMCA's, you had the win out in, in Winfield, you had circus city, you, you know, there was just circuit of clubs that rocked every week, but you got to understand that Philly, Back then, the stars wasn't the rappers. The stars were the DJs. Right. You know what I mean? So when you got the flyers, you weren't going to see, you know, uh, Prince Will Rock. That was Fresh Prince's name before Fresh Prince. Prince Will Rock. You know, you were going to see DJ Jazzy Jeff. You were going to see DJ Cash Money. You were going to see Lightning Rich. You were going to see DJ Spinbad. Like, those were the names on the flyers. And when you, at all of these clubs those are the people who sort of made those rounds. And as young teenagers, we were like, we got to go see the DJ. It was almost like a, 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 you know, who cared who was actually rapping for them. Um, like Jazzy Jeff said earlier, I always wanted to be Jazzy. Like Jazzy Jeff is, 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 is a God to me. Like it's, it's amazing that I can call him a friend now, but cause when I was a kid, you know, I was like following Jazzy Jeff. Like, you know what I mean? Like he was an icon. And during the time he had Rockwell, he had, I see he had all these random MCs, but it really didn't matter. So, you know, you had your DJ circuit in Philly around all of these clubs that all of the DJs were the stars. The Victor Duplay also being one of them, right? What's that? Well, Grandmaster Vic, Victor Duplay. Yeah, yeah, yeah Master, Master Vic. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Master Duplay Vic, was, you know, yep. yeah. Master Vic and the super MCs. You know what I mean? Like he was, he was a, he was a star. You know, and Vic actually went to my high school, so I would go see him at parties on Saturday. Him and and his two MCs, and I come back, and he'd be walking through the halls in high school, and I'm like, "Oh shit, that's Master Vic!" You know. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it was just sort of energy in Philly around the DJs, and this was, and that was the club circuit. What After Midnight brought was this sort of national um, look from a national recording artist perspective. All of the New York people came down to play After Midnight. You know, you got to figure even on the club DJ circuit, it was still neighborhoody, right? When you went to the 52nd Street Y, 90% of the people was from West Philly. You know what I mean? When you went to, you know, the Christian Street Y, 90% of the people were in South Philly. When you went to the After Midnight, it was people from all over the city. And you had performers from that you were listening to on Lady B's hip hop show and, and, and Mimi's hip hop show on DAS. So, it was like, that was like our house of blues. That was where the national acts would come and play. And you would see all of the people in the audience from all over the city, that one place where we would all congregate. Would your life be in danger like the Latin Quarter? Yeah, your life in danger at, at all of these places. But, oh, okay. you know, that's just part of the, <laughs> that's part, that's part of the culture. You know what I mean? Girls so it wasn't would like Ozone Mob or nothing there. Like, yeah, girls would get their earrings snatched and, you know, guys would get their, you know, their sixes jackets taken and, you know, I mean, their name belts and all that shit. But, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's that goes along with, with the culture. If you don't want, if you don't, if you don't want to experience that, stay home. Well, okay, I did. 
Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, why weren't you allowed to go? I don't understand that. Yo, come on, dog. No, he was a... <laughs> I, I did it. Pop I did having it. The, fir- the first show at Prince's Lounge, I wore Birkenstocks. Oh. <laughs> Nothing's oh, changed wow. since. There oh, were no black now, you, now you oh. got Crocs. Oh. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so, okay. Now, how you entered my life was you, you started my first ever bank account. Like, at what point are you realizing hmm. that that basketball might not be your future and when does finance enter and when you were entering finance were you thinking of entertainment finance or were you just thinking like i'll be a professional and you know make low six figures a year get a bmw nice job and you know wife and two kids in mount airy life like where was this paradigm shift in your life where it's like okay money might be in my future um, well, basketball. What are you doing? I was, I was looking and laughing in my mind. Sean was just about to say Darren, but I'm going to yeah, let that's him. That's exactly what I'm going to say. <laughs> ba- 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 basketball stopped becoming important my freshman year when my girlfriend at the time and at Millersville told me she was pregnant. Um, oh. and at that point I had to grow the fuck up. So it was, that'll uh, change things. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So I, November of my sophomore year, my oldest son was born. I was 19 years old, uh, a father. I was a quote unquote statistic, a teenage father who wasn't supposed to make it. And, you know, you're supposed to drop out of school and, you know, all of your dreams are over and just support your kid. But again, back to my mom and actually um, uh, her mother, uh, her mother and father, they both looked at both of us and said, all right, cool. You know, y'all got this, but we're going to take care of this for the next couple of years. We're going to take care of this kid for the next couple of years. Y'all both going to graduate. And that's one thing that's not going to happen. Y'all not going to drop out of school. So that support um, a lot. But but also my mom said, but you're going to get, you, you know, I'm a, I was always a worker anyway. Um, he's like, but, you know, you're going to take care of them too. Like this isn't all on us. So you make sure you get your mm-hmm. ass a job or two. If you need it, you know, you know, you got, you got to take care of it. So wow. at that point, I that's, stopped playing ball. Crazy. Stopped playing ball. I uh, literally worked two jobs from my sophomore year to, to my senior year. Uh, one, one was at a bank in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. One was at Kellogg's facility uh, up there on the weekends. I would, they would shut down the, um, the, the cereal, uh, whatever that is, tre- not treadmill. What do they call the, the, those meals, the assembly the, line, the assembly, assembly line. line, shut down the cereal assembly line, you know, on the weekends and they bring people in and all we do is clean. We clean from 10 at night to 10 in the morning, 12 hours, two days a weekend and get paid doing it. So I had two jobs up at school um, and graduated in four years. Um, I was an accounting major. So, you know, I didn't know what the fuck I wanted to do. Like, it wasn't like I was like, I want to do finance. I, you know, I, I was an accounting major. So I, you know, was like, all right. You know, let me, I guess numbers are, are, are where I'm, where I need to be. Um, I started working for the phone company. Um, it was Bell Atlantic at the time. Um, but it's, it's Verizon now. Uh, and you know, it just was like going through life, not knowing where I wanted to be. It was eliminating things that I didn't want to do. If that makes sense. So worked in the finance department with the phone company. I was like, Oh, this is where I'm supposed to be. Once I got in there, I was like, Oh no, this shit ain't for me. You know what I mean? 
Um, <laughs> after after the finance department, the phone company was like, "Oh, people are going to get their MBA. Like, you know, there's a I, I can get another degree, and that's going to help me make more money. Let me go get my MBA." You know, so I went to moved to Washington D.C. Um, I went to George Washington University full time. While wait, I wait, 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 wait. So y'all parents are still like, okay, so you want to get your MBA. Sorry, Sean, go ahead and move to, to D.C. Yeah. I moved to D.C., but at, at, by that time, I had graduated college. She had graduated college. Uh-huh. Darren was living with her and her parents, but he was with me every weekend. Wow. You know, so was I was good. traveling to get him, even when I lived in D.C. You know what I mean? I would drive up to Lancaster, pick him up, bring him to D.C. He'd be with me on the weekends. I'd take him back drive back um, to D.C. Mm-hmm. So he was with me pretty much every, if not every other weekend. But yeah, she was living with her, she was living with her parents at the time. Um, so, you know, went, got my degree, MBA in finance and investments. You know, okay, what are you supposed to do with that? You either go consulting or you go Wall Street. All right, let me try this Wall Street thing. You know, went up, started, got a job at Citibank, moved to New York. I was a private banker at Citibank you know, working with high net worth individuals. I had an office in New York. I had an office in Zurich, Switzerland. I was spending probably two weeks out of every month in, in Europe, two weeks out of every month in New York, living the dream, right? This but I didn't I, know. But I quickly realized <laughs> I wasn't living my dream. You know, again, eliminating shit that I didn't want to do. That's, that was my, that point in my life, that was four or five years. It was less about finding my direction. It was more about, eliminating things that I didn't want to do. Um, Again, I was spending two weeks in Europe and I had a son in Philadelphia. Like, I'm like, yo, I'm trying to be with my kid. Like, this ain't the life that I want to be, that I want to have. Um, What year was this? This was 97 into 98. So you were in Europe during the time when we were grinding? I was in Zurich. Yes, I was in Switzerland. Damn, okay. I was in Switzerland. Switzerland. Wait, I mean, two, did two, you two see us when of, we were over two there? Or two, you, weeks out, yes. two weeks out of every month. No, we never, we, it never, it never, you know, sort of, we never connected. Are you, are you, at this time, are you talking to Tariq? Are y'all like talking about y'all lives? And the- yeah, I mean, that, I mean, and, and Amir can attest to this, like during this point in the Roots career, like I was the cousin that would come around and hang in the dressing room and drink up their liquor and eat their food and, <laughs> and hang. But then he I was Mel bounce. D. Cole, the original Mel D. Cole. But I would bounce because yes. I had to work in the morning, you know, what I mean? or I had school in the morning. But, you know, yeah, I was definitely, you know, still communicating. And, 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 and down. I, you know, I always say I was because of that, because of me and Tariq, because of the Tariq. Malik introduction, you know what I mean? All of that. I was, I'm part, I was, I'm a root. You know what I mean? I was a root mm-hmm. at that point. I just was a, a root in grad school and a root in Wall Street. Well, but, I, th- uh, <laughs> I think we, we met, I, I think the first, oh, distortion. I forgot. You're the eye in distortion and static. Yes, Are I am. Are you not? Yes, I am. That's I was your the eye, star. Right. I was the star. I was the star of the first two roots then. Yeah. I, I, yo, I forgot about distortion. I know you were in proceed, but I forgot yeah. that. Sean's eye eye. is the eye that if you just Google it, there was a video for that. Um, that, Yeah, get our numbers back up. (laughs) Right. So that's Sean's (laughs) eye. I totally forgot that, Juan. So, okay. So at the time when me and Tariq are sort of elevating this thing past just being a high school rap group at name only and trying to get Juan's at the gallery. Yeah, making like the early organic shit. Yeah. Are you taking that seriously? Like if, when Tariq's playing you like 
past the popcorn and like early organics things is is there anything sparking in your head like all right he's doing something or did you just think like uh they corny nah absolutely taking it seriously you know absolutely taking it seriously when Tariq told me he was going to drop out of school and 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 come back to philly with you and concentrate on this group and he's taking malik i was like yo go you know what i mean because again for me it, a, a part of me wanted to be that like you know what i mean like you remember in high school I was rapping, but it was at a time where nobody wasn't making money and there wasn't no, you know, traveling. It was just like, you know, a, 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 a professional hobby for lack of a better term. Um, so for me to see y'all at that point, you know, focusing, committing, elevating, you know what I mean? I was the one on the phone fucking calling Kobe at Power 99. Like, why don't you play the roots? Why don't you play the roots? Why, you know, even before I worked with you. Before, <laughs> before decades. I worked with y'all. You know what I mean? So it was, I was, I was absolutely taking it seriously. And I was yes. absolutely sort of believing in, you know, the the the, the future, the vision, you know what I mean, of, of, of what y'all were forming at that time. Okay. So what did you have to do? Because I'm, I'm trying to get into how you got into the profession the that you are right now. So I know that, uh, yeah. am I correct? Are we your first clients? Yeah, I mean, I can tell you, I'll give you two How words. How messy as to, were we at two, the time two, when two, you came two aboard? Words, two <laughs> words as to how I got into this business. The how? words are Richard Nichols. Okay. So while I'm being the cousin that's smoking up y'all weed and drinking y'all liquor. Oh, I used to smoke weed. You know what I mean? Me and, me and Rich on the side, we're forming a relationship because I'm also the cousin that's in grad school and, you know what I mean, handling his business. You know what I mean? So Rich, as all of you who know Rich, as a, you know, he, he was a visionary and he could see things before you could see him, right? So mm-hmm. I think during those times where I'm building, I'm just in the back and we just talking and arguing about shit and he's schooling me about life and, you know, why, you know, MBAs don't mean shit in the real world and, you know, all of Ritz's philosophies, you know, he's really, <laughs> he's really testing me. You know what I mean? He's really testing me. And I remember it was um, 1998. Right. I, was at, uh, I was at the bank and he called me. He was like, yo, uh, where you at? And I was like, I'm at the bank. I'm at my job. He was like, yo, come by the studio after. He was at, so remember Sony Studios is on 54th Street. My, my, mm-hmm. my bank was on 53rd um, right. and Lex. So I walked up there, walked in the studio. It was him. And I think it might have been like Axel or somebody back in the day. One of the engineers. Our engineer, um, Axel Neons. Yeah. yeah. And um, Puffy's main guy. He had, you know, two bottles of red wine. You know what I mean? We sat there. Drank a little bit, smoked a little bit, and nobody else was in there. I think he was he was he was mixing like a Jazzy Fat Nasty song or something like that. And uh, he was like, "Yo, I hate this shit." And I was like, "Okay, what you what do you, what do you hate?" And he was like, "This fucking management shit, like I hate it." And I'm looking at him like, "What what is he talking about?" Um, and he was like, "You know, just dealing with the agents, dealing with these dudes and their money, you know, dealing with the record label and budgets and." And all of that shit, he was like, I fucking hate it. Like, I, I, that's the part of my job that I hate. And anyone that knows Rich, you know, was he's the ultimate visionary, the ultimate creative, you know, the fifth Beatle to, you know, to, 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 to the really the, you know, the third and fourth Beatle to Tariq's first and second um, <laughs> from a creative perspective and a visionary perspective. Um, and what he was saying to me was, this part of my job is weighing me down. So I just was like, how can I help? You know what I mean? He's like, all right, this is what we're going to do. 
you know, he gave me Carol Lewis's number. I remember he gave me Carol Lewis's number. He gave me somebody's number at the label. And, 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 and he gave me um, Yoshi's number. And, um, and he was like, yo, call these three. I'm going to tell them you calling them. And then you can take this shit over. And I was like, but Rich, I don't, I, I got a dog. I got a job. Like I got a real fucking job down the street. You know what I mean? And he was like, don't worry about it. You're going to figure it out. You're going to figure it out. <laughs> I literally left the studio as, you know, Rich's partner that night. And, you know, I didn't know shit about the music business, but, you know, I knew finance, right? And I knew business and I knew the rhythm of back to my mom, right? I knew the rhythm of a negotiation and the mm-hmm. rhythm of a conversation. And I work at the bank and I know how to deal with these white folks. You know what I mean? So there's no different than you know, someone I'm dealing with at the bank and someone I'm dealing with the label. So I sort of fell back on the experience that I had my entire life. And, and Rich gave me the opportunity to figure it out. And it was months of me figuring it out. Right. And, you know, at a certain point, it went from me doing two hours of roots work and 10 hours of bank work. And then at a certain point, I'd, you know, be in my office till 10 at night. And realize, like, yeah, I haven't done shit for my bank. Like, I just want the phone, <laughs> negotiating tour deals and figuring out, you know, mileage in, in, from, from London to, you know, whatever. You know, what's the mileage and what's the gas cost? You know, I've been doing that. So I got to a point where I was like, yo, I, I again, going back to my earlier point, I found what I'm supposed to. I've eliminated all of these things that I wasn't, I wasn't interested in. And I finally found my passion. Or I should say my passion found me. Um, you, yeah. And uh, I had to make a decision. You know, I was making six figures at the man. I was 20, this is 97. I was 25 years old, 26 years, 25 years old, um, making six figures at the bank, you know. Um, and but I went and talked to my mom again, you know, my, my rock. And I said, Mom, I'm going I'm to work with I'm going to work for Tariq and his group. You know, what I mean, my mom was like, oh, really? And she's like, he's like, yeah. He's like, well, what you going to do? I said, I, I, I don't know. Like, I, you know, I'm going to be Rich's partner and we're going to figure this out. And, you know, my mom being an entrepreneur that she is, she was like, look, as long as you can take care of that boy, talking about Darren, as long as you can take care of that boy, <laughs> right. you can pay your rent, go ahead, do you. You know, so I said a prayer and, and, and jumped out on faith. And I remember my first year, I was making six figures with, in the bank. And my first year with The Roots, I made $27,000. Um, and, uh, you know, took a huge pay cut. But I, 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 I always say, poverty. the last day that I worked, the last day that I worked in my life, the last time I worked a job was that last day at the bank. You know what I mean? Like, that's the last job I've ever had. The last day I woke up and said, I have to go to work was that day in April of 1998 when I left the bank. Listen, Black representation is essential. If I hadn't seen and heard certain Black women in radio, I wouldn't be in radio. Women like Robin Breeden, Candy Shannon, Michelle Wright, Deanna Williams. Women owning radio stations like Kathy Hughes. Listen, the next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. Word. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. 
Each episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective. From Bobby Smurder to The Wire, Michelle Obama to reparations, there's no limit to the range of black stories, black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Here are a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so I feel silly. Because as much traveling as I do, and as many Airbnbs that I stay in, because that's the only way I travel, I really have never considered my own space. I mean, think about it. What if you can make money for your next vacation while you're on vacation? And I know what you're thinking. You're like, my house is just not fancy enough. I just can't do the things. You're sleeping on your space. I'm sleeping on my space. Yes, I'm talking to myself. And I really don't even have to use my whole place. I could just Airbnb a room. I know how this works. Because again, I use Airbnb. Duh. I mean, just think about it. Most of us that use Airbnb are only using it for 50% of its power. We're spending the money, but we're not making the money. What if we could do both? Whoa. Mind-blowing. And your home really might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. The thing is, is that all right, can you explain to our listeners what does it entail? Now, I'll, I'll give the, the pre-story, at least with us, the way that we were living very hand-to-mouth. Um, you would do a show, nine times out of ten, we'd, you know, we'd get paid in cash. Um, even though our system was a little bit different, it was more of like a socialist system, like you get Absolutely. to rent paid, you get to rent paid, you get to, you know, that sort of thing, and had like a little allowance. But you know, the first time I got my advance, you know, I you you would have killed me. Like I I spent that shit in three weeks. My advance. What'd you get? What'd you get? Um, about let's see, seven thousand dollars worth of records. Yeah, a bunch of Pumas. You know, I was I was Billy Jean. I, I was I was I about throwing, to say, I saw you you say you was giving bums money. I was, like, I was throwing, I was throwing <laughs> it was like a hundred bucks trying to watch the joints like glow in the dark. Like ugh, I, I was just you know Sean hates this story, but that look he's pissed. He's already mad. Sean looks pissed no, 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 already. It's, it's the truth. That's still mad, what, like 30 years later. 30 just, years later, right. 
you just you don't think about like I wasn't thinking about like am I like back in 1993 like 1999 seemed like the future like oh we won't be here that that sort of thing ah. you know even coming back from the proceed video my dad was still like you got to get a real job like I didn't see this as a sustainable future. So can I'm so you explain, curious what he, how he tuned it up. Yes, I'm yeah, sorry. Can you explain how uh, an organization with at least 13 people, because we rolled like, you know, there's a band, there's, you know, staff and all those things. Can you just basically, because a lot of people do want to know how the Roots been able to be survive. a thing with yeah, thrive and be a thing when on paper we technically should now yeah like what was those first changes that you made sean like you came in you was like oh no we gotta do this we gotta i mean it, no, it's, no it's, more it's, pumas well sean also <laughs> would threaten to fire me if i ever fucked up i don't know if we'll go into his clients that have d- no if you i mean sean has me shell shock like if i spend anything over like my 1999 budget. I'm still like, hey, can I buy this bicycle or, you know, <laughs> Christmas. It, 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 like, I'm it, certain it, I'm good for it. It's an interesting thing. It's but it's still shell shocking. Because, I, again, coming into this business, I, I, didn't, I didn't grow up in this business. So I didn't know the norms and the roles and the titles and the things, right? So when I started working with Rich, You know, I remember we had a conversation. We were in the studio one day and I asked him, I said, you know, what's my title? And he was like, I don't know. You know, he's like, what's my title? You know what I mean? And I was like, (laughs) true. I was like, facts. Um, And we sort of settled on these titles of creative manager and business manager. Right. Um, But it it, it extended my role extended beyond what a traditional business manager did like a business manager in the business is pretty much your accountant, you know, or your financial advisor, that person builds your financial team. You know, it's the hub of your financial team. So that person is the one who interacts with your tax accountant and interacts with your investment team and interacts with your insurance team and your bank and, you know, all of the financial activity around your business. He's your CFO. Um, for me, that was an easy sort of title because that is the, that is similar to the role that I played at the bank as a private banker. That's what I was doing for high net worth individuals. I was the hub of all of their financial activity and using specialists in the bank and bringing them in. So I was like, cool. But my role with the roots were, was more. You know, I was also the person that was, was responsible for touring, you know, tour strategy, tour budgets, tour execution. Um, you know, every aspect of a tour, you know, Rich sort of handed that to me. And again, that that's not your traditional business manager. You know what I mean? It's sort of part of the management job. So where me and Rich sort of had our, our, our delineation was all of the business aspects of management, dealing with the label. Like most business managers don't deal with the label, but I was dealing with managing recording budgets and, and, and that type of thing while Rich was dealing with making the records. The maker, um, yeah, he was in the studio. You know, yeah. so so those first couple years was a period of adjustment for both of us because I came in on my flat shoe, ignorant to the business shit, and Rich, although he was the, you know, upon first sight, or if you get in an argument with him, 
You know what I mean? You think he's the roughest, toughest, you know, dude in the room. Rich was a softy. Like, Rich was like, Dr. Yes. Like, anybody can get anything out of Rich. You know what I mean? So, for me, it was like, I was like, dog, why do we have all of these people around? Like, he's like, oh, because we're developing this and this and that and this and that. We literally argue back and forth about the usefulness of individuals or why are we paying this out of the roots tour money? Like, why is this person getting their rent paid out of the roots tour money? Like, are they not self-sufficient? Like, is this, do we have a deal with these people? So I came in and sort of instituted traditional business structure in a non-traditional business, or at least tried to institute traditional business structure in a non-traditional business. And it was the yin and yang of Rich's creative um, uh, vision, as well as socialist mentality, mixed with my Mm. more capitalist mentality and hardcore vision that sort of formed this nice sort of pocket that we ended up in, right? We ended up with the Roots crew, but I also made sure that the Roots were cool. (laughs) You know what I mean? If we just would have went with the Roots crew, the Roots probably wouldn't be here by now. So I made sure, (laughs) like, yes, we got the Roots crew, you know what I mean? Which is, you know, planting seeds for a lot of other people, but I'm going to make sure that the Roots are cool as well because that is the bus that we're all riding. And it was that sort of, that back and forth up front, which was a lot of back and forth that allowed us to build the foundation, I'd say by like 2002, 2003, when we start sort of rolling post, uh, post things fall apart, post Grammy, that sort of allowed us to take this, you know, this, this beautiful journey that we've been on for the last couple of decades. Did so, you know you'd be the bad cop to Rich's good cop? I'm sorry, Amir. I mean, oh. at, at, at times I was. Most of the times I was the more, I was the financial bad cop to Rich's good cop. But I also was the, the, the creative and business good cop sometimes to Rich's bad cop. Like we play yin and yang really well, especially with, you know, the, the, the label side or promoters or, you know, creatives, you know what I mean? We played, we, we played our, our good cop, bad cop really well. But definitely because of my background, you know, I played the financial bad cop. And, and, and Rich played the you know, good cop just because he was Dr. Yes a lot of mm-hmm, times. Mm-hmm. But, but we, 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 we balanced each other well. And I think, you know, at the end, we, at the end we, you know, we were both managers. You know what I mean? Like I, I just said business manager without knowing that business manager was actually a role in the music business. I just like, okay, I handled the business, <laughs> you handled the creative. Um, so wow. I ran with that. But I think that, that, that's the reason why we were able to lay the foundation for the roots. And, 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 and I said this before in other, in, in other interviews, us, you know, we were, we were also realistic, yo. Like at the end of the day, our goal was, can these guys make enough money so that they don't have to go get a day job, you know, and, and, and make money and live off of their art. You know what I mean? That was our goal. It wasn't like, let's, let's, let's make sure that Amir can drop around in the Maybach and Tariq can have 25 cribs around the country. It was like, yo, can they pay their rent? Can they give their mom some money when she needed for a light bill? Can they take a lady out on a date? You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and, and then can we go and do it all again? So it was like having realistic goals, understanding the, the, what a blue-collar musician is. Because, mm. you know I mean? again, mm. Rich, come from the, Rich came from that jazz world where it was, you know, blue-collar musicians. You know what I mean? So understanding that, 
you know, a blue collar musician is, you know, living off of his, his or her art and they're enjoying that versus going and having a substitute teach and, you know, playing the jazz mm-hmm. clubs at night when they can, you know Tax. what I mean? So it was sure. that, that sort of mentality that we always had. And obviously those goals increased over the, as we got more successful, you know, those, but we've always, even to this day, you know, I, I, you know, it's funny. I'll be in these rooms and they be like, I love the roots. I really do love the roots. And I'm like, name fucking three root songs, bro. <laughs> you love the concept of the roots. You know what I mean? Love the idea. Like, right. the <laughs> name three root songs. You know what I mean? But again, for us, that's always been our goal was how can we take these virtuoso, you know, performers, you know, Tariq and Amir, how can we make sure that you know, they can they can create a living off of their talent because they're super fucking talented and there's nobody out there better than them. They may never create a hit record ever in life, but that shouldn't define, you know, their future and their ability to earn a living off of their Your artists. quality of life, you know yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So you mentioned the, the socialist system versus the capitalist system, mm-hmm. of which, you know, I think people think I'm super exaggerating when I said, like, we we really didn't start as far as me and Tariq, like really put ourselves on payroll until like later, later, later in life. Whereas absolutely before it was very socialist, like, okay, again, your rent gets paid and your car bill gets paid. And that's how, and you kind of came in and cleaned up shop. Like, okay, well, why are we, so do you, in hindsight, do you feel as though that, I think the socialist position sort of kept us pure, mm. but did you agree with it? Because the thing I is, agree, is that I, I agree with aspects of it. You know what I mean? I agree with aspects of it, but I think I think the way that things were set up, um, people were taking advantage of it, and people were taking advantage of rich. Um, and I think he and I think he realized that too. I think that's why I got that call that night from the bank. Um, but I, I agree with aspects of it. I agreed with the sort of creative community that was being built. And for any community, the one thing that in any creative community, any, you know, sort of, uh, a musical movement, you know, whatever you want to call it, you know, the one thing that's needed in order to breathe life into it is infrastructure. Otherwise it's just some one-off musicians and artists, yeah. fucking, you know, just being doing creative. Shit. Yeah. He's just right. fucking doing shit, right? <laughs> it's not a community or a movement without any infrastructure. And what Rich had was the vision to, to say, okay, we're going to provide that infrastructure. Right. And without that creative infrastructure, without that infrastructure, the community slash movement slash everything that was happening, that beautiful times that we all had from, you know, 97 to 2004, um, where all of this shit, you know, really sort of took off. Um, it wouldn't have it wouldn't have existed without Richard, Richard Nichols, pre, you know, creating that infrastructure. However, the problem when you have, you know, infrastructure without structure is that infrastructure would have would have eaten itself alive because there would have been too many people eating at that same apple. You know what I mean? At some point, you got to be like, I'm cutting this apple in half. Yeah. Tariq and Amir, this is your half. Everybody else, this is y'all half. If y'all can't survive off of this, oh, so be it. You know what I mean? Um, so that's where, you know, the, 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 the balance of me and Rich, at least in that time, was, was that I provided the structure for the infrastructure. But if it, if it were just my way, 
it probably wouldn't have survived either because I was too hardcore. You know, this is about Tariq and Amir. And I think that that without the community, I think y'all thrived off of the community as well. Think you know about I mean? that. There would have been no Black Lily. And think about yeah. all the people that came from say, there. Like, That's, okay, that player. Would, yeah. Or, okay, yeah, player. Okay, player. Yeah. Black Lily. You know, yeah. even, even the, you know, the, the, the whole, you know, Talib Kweli, kind of like all, all of that, not that they were core, but they were part of the, the orbit. That that, yeah. that everybody sort of you know revolved around. So I think you know to your point, Amir. I think this. I, I agreed with a portion of you know the socialist you know ideas, um, and I think they they were part of the reason why we've been able to to survive. But you know, if we just would have stuck with that, um, I don't think we'd be where we are today. Okay. Can you talk about the growing? I guess the first two ventures that we really put our eggs into those baskets was OK Player and Black Lily. Now, I remember in the beginning, I think I had to really sell you and Rich that this was going to be the future. Like, Absolutely. I, I don't think Rich really saw, you know, what the hell me and Ange was doing, you know, in the bedroom trying Which to build Which was the easier thing. sell, Amir? Which was the easier sell? Between the well, two. It's weird because, you know, I I was done before it was Black Lily was the jam right. sessions. Right. And so, you know, the, the second, third week, you know what I'm saying? Like, really, I'm not exaggerating. Like, Beanie Siegel was putting out blunt ashes on the floor. Like, everyone in the room is a bona fide celebrity. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Music really was the pizza guy. You know what I'm saying? But just at the time, they're regular people using my living room as their hub. And I got to live on the block and neighbors looking at me like I'm crazy. Like, why y'all jam until two in the morning? That sort of thing. So I, you know, yeah, I Amir went along out. with the jam. Amir checked out. He checked out of the jam session. Yeah. I called mm. the police on us. <laughs> I was Karen. Yeah, I was about he, to use he the Karen, the Karen in your yeah. own shit. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. 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 So, yeah, so, so, so. I, my heart was with OK Player simply because, right. like, I I just envisioned a future where there was a, a virtual playground wow. that I could contact. Wow. OK, Amir. Yeah. And so, but it was a hard sell for Rich and Sean. And there have been many times where, like, they were just like, dog, let this go. Like, let it die. And so, at what point did you get that this might be something futuristic. So, so we talking OK Player or we talking Black Lady? Which one are you going to talk first? Either or, because I feel like that's so, so, integral so, to your story. Yeah, so for, let's talk Black Lily first. So Black Lily, Amir told the story a thousand percent correct. Like Black Lily started off as the jam, the Roots Jam Session. The Roots Jam Sessions are epic, you know, have been done for years, you know, in various places started in Amir's living room and, you know, sort of grew from there. Um, when the Roots Jam sessions started happening in clubs, um, I forget the club that Malik Yoba used to have in, in New York. Remember we did the, that club? Um, oh, damn. 42nd, 42nd Street. You know, we went from there. About that. Then yeah. we went down to to the wetlands. and But the problem was it, be, it became a, a, a all fucking male rappers. You know what I mean? It was like a line at the side of the stage of, you know, dudes trying to get up and spit. And, you know, in the community that, that, that the Roots had formed, you know, there were female artists, most notably the Jazzy Fat Nasties. And they would either never get an opportunity to get on stage 
or they'll get on and, you know, sing, you know, four bars of a hook while some random rapper is, you know, rapping for 80, 86 bars. Yeah. <laughs> right. um, or they get on at the end of the night after four hours of energy gone and people are leaving. Right. So Rich and Mercedes and Tracy, um, you know, came up with the idea of doing their own jam session. Um, and, you know, Black Lily, I remember it was, you know, a, a sort of a play on Lilith Fair because Lilith Fair was that thing back then. It was yeah, sort of a play yeah. on Lilith Fair. They came up with the name and the Jazzy Fat Nasty was also signed to the Roots label, Motive Records. And rather than, you know, and, and it wasn't a huge like marketing budget that, that, that they were given at that time. So, you know, they came up with the idea of saying, you know, rather than randomly spend our money on you know, radio promotion, which who knows what that actually gets you, especially when you're an emerging artist. How about we pool this money and again, back to the C word, create this community. You know, let's build this, this, this brand. Let's build this event, this weekly event that started off in New York, um, this weekly event. So, you know, called Black Lily, which builds from the, the energy and style and, 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 and aura of the Roots Jam Sessions, right? Um, so Black Lily was built off of that. It was, you know, here is the, the next iteration of the Roots Jam Session. And it was funded by, initially, by the Jazzy Fat Nasty's marketing budget. Um, and I remember that first, that first event we had was at the Wetlands, and there was probably like 15 people there. You know what I mean? But wow. it was dope. It was dope. You know, and we just continued on a weekly basis, and the crowd started coming, and people heard about it. It was free. That was the that was the other part of it. Early on, it was mm. free. You know what I mean? We just had the market. It's pre-social media. It's like market, you know, to to get people there. But it was free, and that free event just started started growing. Um, and then it you know eventually moved from New York to Philly to the five spot, et cetera, et cetera. And you know it grew to become you know what what people know as Black Lily. But it with still that, was again, never more than ten dollars. <laughs> it still never was more than ten dollars, and it became a, and it became you know at, at a certain point. So post. Jazzy Fat Nasty's um, uh, budget funding it, you know, Richard Nichols' commissions were funding it. Because again, you got to realize this is yeah. post, this is post Sean G coming into the fold, right? So it wasn't like, we ain't using his roots money to fund this Black Lily thing. You know what I mean? Um, you know, we got enough, we got enough things that the roots money are, is funding over here. So, you know, Rich, you know, mainly rich quite honestly was using the commissions that he was making off of the roots to fund that five spot version of the black lily and to your point like yeah we would you know we charged at the door ten dollars but that was barely you know covering backline you know what i mean um mm. so it was a we lost a lot of money but you know a lot of a lot of big musical movements if you look at them in history um you know they didn't make money you know what i mean they they, they created <laughs> they created culture, but it wasn't it, it wasn't a profit center. Yeah, it's like we got um, Jasmine Sullivan and Flo yeah, and yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, so that that's the history of, of sort of Black Blue. Kendrick now, the Family Soul. Absolutely, they yeah. held us down. Like yes. Kendrick the Family Soul. It, it, we went on the OK Play. So Black Lily was popping. Then we built an OK Player tour, and we took all of the Black Lily artists on the OK Player tour. So then what happens to Black Lily when they're all out on the road for two, three months? Kendra, the family soul, Bettina and Asia, and their band, which, you know, at the time, again, they ain't had no money at the time. So they just picked musicians that were passionate about their vision. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. And, Toy Story. And, and, 
and at the <laughs> beginning, you know, I remember me and Rich would look at them like, they sloppy as shit. Like, not for Teen and Angel, but they're bad. It was just sloppiness. But after four, five, six, seven, ten weeks, Revenge. you know what I mean? Everybody comes back off the road. They tight. They <laughs> owned Black Lily. They defined Black Lily. They were like the, the reason roots, to the come, roots, yes. The Roots would come and perform at Black Lily, and people would be like, ah, that's cool, that's cool. Where's Kendrick? <laughs> <laughs> you know I mean? yeah. Where's Kendrick? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and and they still, I mean, again, shout out to both of them because they still one of my favorite groups. Like I love, I love them. Um, but yeah, so that's that. That's the Black Lily story. I mean, okay, player, you're right. Um, you and you and Ange had the vision. Um, I stepped in early on because I just wanted to make sure there was some business structure there. Again, I didn't want this to be okay. Amir starting this business in his bedroom, and you know he's going to eat into our roots profits and we won't be able to pay for our tour bus on the next tour because, you know, he's buying everybody computers. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> but, like you. but what y'all built was immediately special. Mm-hmm. Um, again, the community that, 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 that formed around OK Player. Oh my God! Foreign exchange! Foreign yeah, exchange. The little brother, the foreign yes. exchange. The whole absolutely, yep. absolutely. And, and the relationships and the music and the artists and, you know, I think Will I Am was like, yo, y'all were the, y'all were the first yeah. Facebook. You know what I mean? Like, he said something like that. Y'all were the first Facebook. Because it, it was all about the community. It was less about, you know, artists' websites. Like, that's how we went into it, right? It was like, Let's build this website. Let's build that website. But yeah, you know, you you and uh, you and Ange, your participation and Angie's, you know, sort of vision and and craziness. You know what I mean? <laughs> we're, we're able to we're able to attract this sort of community that 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 you know has has continued to to, to grow and build. Um, so how how did what were the first steps into you really building? coming outside of just keeping us you know keeping the lights on for us and then you uh, like what's next I mean, level? There's, two, there's two phases of yeah. your 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 empire right at least as, as far as um tour managing other artists like what was your first foray yeah. in tour managing artists that weren't roots based so so or business manager. I don't. Yeah, again, I don't. And this, this is, and this is a a study in my life. Like the title, you know, my title. I, I don't know what it is. Like I call myself a manager. You know, that's what I say, a manager, because people kind of understand that. But I do more. You know, it's 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 not your traditional name. Anyhow, my second client was a young lady out of Philadelphia that I've known since high school by the name of Jill Scott. Um. Jill and I went to brother-sister high schools. I went to Central. She went to Girls High. Um, I knew her in high school. Um, we, uh, we went on, a we, went on a, a... we didn't go on a prom together, but Yes, we okay, on. because she's already told this story, so we needed to sound the same. Y'all went to the prom. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Y'all went to the prom. She, she went on a prom with a guy. I went on a prom with a young lady. After the... You know how after the prom, you go to Great Adventures. Right. Um, so we were all at the prom together. Then the next day, it was like four couples that were supposed to go to Great Adventure together. It was the three couples and me. My date didn't go with me. So it was, you know, I was the, the, the third wheel or whatever you want to call it. So, you know, we, <laughs> we, we hung out then. And, you know, I sort of lost touch with Jill after high school. Like, you know what I mean? She was the girl's high, Joan. Um, and I remember 
um, having a cassette, Tariq giving me a cassette with the original You Got Me beat and hook. And on the cassette was written the Jill song. I don't know if you remember this, Amir. It used to be called the Jill song. Yeah, the Jill used, song, right. Yeah, right. it was, and you know, I just ignored it. I was like, oh, the Jill song. I was like, yo, that Jill song banging. Like, yo, that Jill song, you gotta do that Jill song. Anyhow, at a certain point, we were on tour and we were at whatever that venue that is across the street from Fenway Park in Boston. You know that little club, Fonte, that's right across the street from Fenway Park? It's not the it's not the Middle East. It's um it might have been the Middle East. Um, I don't know what it is. Right across the Fenway Park. But I remember we were in Middle Sound East. Is, yeah. We were in, in Sound Chat and um I heard this voice from the stage, and it was Jill singing You Do You Got Me Hook. Um, and I walked out and I'm looking at her, and she's looking at me, and I'm like, Jill Scott, like you are the Jill song? And she was like, Sean G. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that was like the first time we connected was at Soundcheck when she came out, you know, doing some doing some shows with the roots. Um, and you know, her husband or ex-husband now uh was managing her at the time, and she had her and her lawyer had to negotiate with me the deal terms to get on that tour. And, you know, I think she had, you know, a lawyer that was like, you know, she was a, a lawyer, but she wasn't an entertainment lawyer. It might have been her girlfriend or something, you know what I mean, that happened to be a lawyer. And she was asking for all kinds of shit. Like, I was like, yo, sweetheart, like, do you understand what this is? Like, I'm going to give you this amount of money and this is how we try. Like, you know what I mean? She's like, well, she needs to fly between each other. And I'm like, yeah, we play in House of Blues. Like, what are you talking about? But because <laughs> Jill was my friend, because she was my friend or, you know, I had known her. I called her and Lizelle and said, yo, I'm just going to give you a piece of advice. Like this lawyer, she has no idea what she's talking about and she may ruin relationships. Yeah. yeah she going to like, if it wasn't me, yeah. if it wasn't me, I would be like, fuck this girl. Let's just, you know, we'll figure out how we do this. This girl is crazy. Right. So I think her and Lizelle appreciated that. And, you know, a few months, you know, then, you know, Jill became, you know, she started putting her record together and, Touch of Jazz and, you know, all of that. And her record came out July of 2000, July of 2000. And I think later in the fall, like she was, you know, everything, she was grinding or whatever. And they called me and was like, yo, can you come be a part of our team? And I was like, what what do you want me to do? Again, it's almost like a Richard Nichols call. I was like, what do you, what do you, what do you want me to do? And they were like, you know, I don't, we don't know. We don't know what we're doing. You know, you work with The Roots. You know, you know what you're doing and we trust you. That was basic, the basic premise of our relationship, the, the call and the start of our relationship. So again, I came in leveraging what I knew, finance. So, you know, I stepped in and looked at the money and tried to make sure everything was structured right business wise. I came in and immediately took over all the touring because I was the roots guy. We were doing 200 shows a year. Like this is how you organize your touring, et cetera, et cetera. And I just came in playing my role again. I never had a title with Jill. We always called ourselves business partners because, you know, she went through a couple managers and then she's like, this manager shit ain't working for me. You know, me and Sean, we just rock together. We're business partners. But people call me her business manager early. People to this day call, call me her manager, but we're, we're just business partners. We just, we just build, right? We build together. So Jill was yeah. my second client. And, you know, thankfully both the roots and my first two clients, I always say, will be my last two clients. You know what I mean? We've hmm. been together you know, multiple decades. Um, my third client, though, is the one who sort of um, 
set my trajectory to where, you know, the, the next phase of my business was. And that was, you know, me getting a call from Don DeWest um, in 2004 when Kanye had college dropout and wanted to do a tour. You know, um, he wanted to do a tour. He wanted to do a college tour. And nobody on his team had ever worked with a tour, touring artist. You know, his managers at the time, G. Roberson, who's my partner Robeson, life, hip-hop. Al Branch, yeah. hip-hop. They all, at that point, they, all they managed was producers. They had Just Blaze. They had Ye. You know, remember, Ye was a superstar producer before mm-hmm. he became an artist. So they were like the managers of all the superstar producers. So they ain't no shit about touring. Um, the business manager that he had, Kellogg and Anderson, I believe was the company in LA, they were filming TV. You know, they, they didn't have any music folks. So they didn't know much about touring. And his agent was a lady named Kara Lewis. And Kara <laughs> told them, you need to talk to this guy, Sean G, because he can organize, strategize, he'll have your shit right. So they flew me out to LA, um, interviewed like three people, and they hired me on the spot. Um, Wait, can I ask? Because yep. you mentioned that we did 200 shows a year. Were, was that common knowledge, like, was that common knowledge in the business of, like, how the roots keep, like, able to, you know, is that normal for a music act to do that many shows? Like, what does a normal act do in terms of, like, what, is it, what does a gang star do in that time period? Or so so and that, does... you got to think about the time period that we're in. In the time period that we're in, um, touring wasn't sexy. You know what I mean? Touring wasn't a thing, especially in black culture. You know, in, in the in the alt rock world, which is, you know, alt rock slash jam band world, which you know, Amir's was our model. That's the model that me, you, Rich, and Tariq sort of built around was like, you know, the alt rock or jam band model. Yeah, doing Fish, that. Right. Doing, doing, right. Right. Doing, 150, yeah. doing 150, 200 shows a year was normal with that world. Um, because number one, these bands grew up as fans of bands, you know what I mean? So it was part of their culture. Their favorite bands, when they were growing up and playing that guitar in their garage or wherever the fuck they, they learned their music, their favorite bands, they experienced live. So it was live was part of their culture. Our culture, you know, as, as consumers of Black music, you know, especially hip-hop, live wasn't a thing. So we were a huge anomaly within hip hop by doing all those shows, you know, hip hop tour was, you know, a uh, uh, bad boy versus, you know what I mean? Whatever. You know what I mean? It was, it was, <laughs> if you're not in the big arena with, with, with pyro and, and all of that, you're not really touring. You know what I mean? You going after yeah, it was like fresh your, fest your, or whatever. Your, yeah. Right. Yeah. You going after your big publishing checks and you going after your Adidas deal, or you going to get another advance from a label. That's how you made your money. Like you weren't making money on the road. Who did that? So, for us, we were an anomaly in hip hop. We were an anomaly in black music by doing all of that. So from, a, from an overall artist perspective and, and fan perspective, they probably didn't recognize it. But the business people in the music industry recognized it. The label heads, the label execs, the, the, the agents, you know what I mean? They all realized like, oh shit, the roots... You know what I mean? They, they, they're doing their thing and, and they're a live band. Like, you know, so that's how I was recognized through Kara Lewis to be recommended to Kanye because of the business that we built by doing 200 shows a year and making sure it's organized, making sure we're, you know, again, simple shit. We're on time. 
You know what I mean? <laughs> we're, we're, we, we, we perform, you know, we collect our money, we pay our bills and we wake up and do it another day. You know what I mean? That's sort of back to the blue collar, that blue collar musician, let you me, know, let, let me ask one more question what, yeah. inside of this question. Yeah. Um, again, like if you look at marketplaces and maybe this is more of an agent question, maybe this is the Carol Lewis episode. I don't know. But if, as far as I know, there's really eh, around the world, what would you say that there's maybe at the most 23 markets for us? For the, for the roots? Use us as an example. Like Just how many markets are there and <laughs> like how, the roots how are we able yeah. to, to pass? Like, like, is it normal for an artist? Cause that's the thing I want to convey to people. Is it normal for an artist to play New York city seven times a year and still sell out. Like, how are you? I just had this conversation with, I had this conversation with an agent um, because again, you got to think about the time frame that we were in um, versus the time frame now, like right now it, you know, a lot of, and because, you know, I'm sure we'll get to the live nation side of my life, but because I'm working with artists from a different perspective, you know, it is short term gratification. It is, yo, I played the house of blues last tour. Why aren't I playing, you know, Hammerstein Ballroom this tour? And I want to be in Madison Square Garden by my next album. You know what I mean? And I'm like, yo, y'all fucking tripping. Like this in 2020, that does not happen. Yeah, you we we from a roots perspective, we played the House of Blues (laughs) for 15 years (laughs) and we're happy about it. And how the world we increased our financial was Instead of trying to reach too far on venue size, we would just increase the ticket price every increase time we price. came back. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that's how we went from ten thousand dollars a show to twelve five. You better 15. save for that New Year's Eve you show. Know what I mean? <laughs> so, so that, so that part of it. I mean, you know, we don't. You know, we ha- there. Are, there are probably you know a good. 30 to 35 cities if you're a popular hip hop artist in the US that you can play. If you're if you're if you're Drake, you know, you can go yeah, into you Des Moines. Can pull up you can go into Des Moines, yeah. Iowa, and Eugene, <laughs> Oregon, and you know, what I mean Tallahassee, Florida, and you know, you can you can hit those 40 and 50, 50, you know, tertiary or whatever is beyond tertiary markets. But for most successful artists, you're between 25 and 30 markets in the US. Um, in Europe, you know, you have multiple markets in the UK, you know, depending on, again, how big you are from a from a from a pop culture perspective, um, from a pop culture perspective, depending on how big you are. You have multiple markets in the UK and then you have a handful in, in continental Europe, uh, you know, in, in the continent. Like, it's not like you're going too deep. You know, you, you're basically one city per country. <laughs> you know wow. what I mean? Mm-hmm. You're doing Amsterdam. Yes. You're doing, wow. you know, Paris. You might do yeah. You're yeah. doing, you might hit like Helsinki, like you might Helsinki, do like Helsinki. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're doing, Germany, you can hit two or three cities. You know what I mean? Berlin, um, and you got motherfucking uh, like Berlin, Dusseldorf. And maybe. Du- yeah. Dusseldorf yeah, kind of yeah. went up last time I went, but like, yeah, you got <laughs> Berlin can go. Yeah. Berlin will go. Yeah, up. yeah. So, so you know, it's there's there isn't a, a, a ton now. What's what's opened the market is festivals because you have festivals in these secondary cities in Europe now where you can go to Lyon or whatever the nail, you can go to, um, to, to Portugal, you know, where you can't go do a hard ticket date there. You can go. So that's opened up the amount of markets is the, the sort of festival economy over the last decade. 
But, you know, there is a limited amount of markets. And for us, what we did is we continue to just go back and play markets because you build that audience one show, one fan at a time. You Yo, know what and, I mean? And when, and, and when it's time to grow, you'll know when it's time to grow. And it should be noted by this time, by the time you get to Kanye, you're not a one man band, right? Like there's like an office, maybe you got some help or are you still? Yeah, 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 okay. yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. right around Jill, right around Jill, when I picked up Jill, I started, you know, I hired two people. Right. You know what I mean? I was like, okay, now I got, now I got a company. Um, you know, when it was the roots, it was just me. I was just trying to figure out what the hell I was doing. When I got Jill, I was like, oh, I got a business. I got two clients, you know. By the time I got to Kanye, you know, I never I never really stacked up to, you know, a, a thousand people in 16 offices. It's always been a, a pretty small, pretty small uh, uh, operation. But 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. So by the time I got to Kanye, you know, I had I had I had some folks with me. Okay, so in building your clientele, um, which you know, Drake is well, I mean, more than that, I, who name all your clients because I know Latifah, and again, I know you don't have a title. But as far as I know, if money is coming down the pike to you, you are in some you're under that management umbrella. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was it was so that's why I say. For, so with Kanye, I, I had this weird role of I wasn't his manager. I wasn't his business manager. I wasn't his agent. I wasn't uh-huh. his you know, all of that. I was just a consultant in touring. So I, you know, I worked with him. We 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 worked on that very first college tour, which was the school spirit tour. Um, from college dropout and you know and when I say worked I mean I built it was more tour strategy like I hired the tour manager I hired the production manager I hired the whole team um, and I worked with the agent and worked with Ye on the overall strategy and you know I started with him on colleges and I think the last tour I did with him was watch the throne you know with, 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 with him and Jay and you know I sort of took that trajectory Went from with him, I went from clubs to theaters to amphitheaters to arenas to stadiums, you know, and I learned the big business of touring through my experience with Kanye West. As I started building that reputation, other and building my relationships, other artists started coming to me for that work. So G. Roberson, his next client after Kanye in 2007 was Lil Wayne. And again, this is 2007, 2008, Lil Wayne. You know, he releases Carter Three, Carter the three, biggest yeah. record million in first the world, week. a million of yeah. first week. So he's no longer some, some hood-ass hip-hop artist. He's a driving pop culture. But his touring was on some hood shit. Like, he was still getting brown paper bags from the strip clubs. Mm. You know what I mean? So G was like, yo, my, my guy just did the Glow in the Dark tour with, with Kanye. We need to bring him over here. Um, so G and Cortez hired me again. I wasn't Wayne's business manager. I wasn't Wayne's manager. I was just this guy who came in and built his touring business. And we went from, you know, strip clubs and, and brown paper bags to, you know, I Am Music Tour, which is the first tour. And then we did I Am Still Music Tour after he got out of jail. And we've done America's Most Wanted and, you know, built that up. On that first tour with Wayne, you know, he had a bunch of artists that he was developing on this random tour bus. And on that bus was Drake. A young young gentleman by the name of Drake and a young lady by the name of Nicki Minaj, amongst others. So, you know, I started working with G and Cortez and I started working with Drake early on and built the sort of infrastructure for him. And for me, my role was touring, you know what I mean? And I helped, you know, build with his agent, uh, Rob Gibbs, help build his early touring career. I think the last tour I did with Drake was Club Paradise um, when I had, you know, just just how the puzzle works. 
on the first Europe to- European tour that I did with Drake, Drake chose an opener by the name of J. Cole. You know, J. Cole and his management team, I knew his management team. They knew my wife through the business. And, you know, on that Europe tour, we built and they called me in, 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 in London. They called me in their, in their dressing room and was like, Sean, I need you to help us. You know, what you're doing with Drake, and what you did with Wayne, I need you to help us. So I worked with Cole from the Friday Night Lights period on up through his first arena tour. I mean, a lot of the roles that I play with artists, because I'm building their touring, I'm also educating their team. So I sort of work myself out of a job at certain points in time. You know what I mean? Like, you know, when, 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 too much game. You know, when, when Drake's contract was up with, with, with Cortez and G, the management company, you know what I mean? And his management team who came on as, as bright eyed, you know, you know, sort of naive Toronto kids, but, but super smart. You know what I mean? They come, ask me questions. They see how the shit run. Like, it's not, it's not rocket science. It's like, if you're smart and you're atten- you pay attention to detail, you can do this, right? So at a certain point, they're like, all right, cool, Sean. I- I'm good. You know what I mean? J. Cole, same, same thing. J. Cole's crew, I love them. You know what I mean? I love them because they were super smart. They thought out of the box. They were always individuals, never really followed a, a pattern. Eve and Adam, we would always talk about touring and vision. And, and Rob Gibbs, again, their agent. And, you know, at a certain point, they were like, oh, you know, your resources are my resources now, right? I know I know a rigger, what a rigger does, and I know I can call the rigger, you know, who <laughs> hung my lights last tour. So I don't need, you know, but I don't mind that because I think that's part of, you know, I'll use the L word, but that's part of sort of my legacy in the business is I and am mentorship. teaching, that's dope. I am, I am teaching these young, you know, super smart future executives the, the touring game. So I went from Cole to Nikki. Um, Wayne, Cole, Nikki, Drake, um, you know, and, and, and a few others. But that was sort of And the, also I think, too, man, is you teaching them how to do it for themselves. Not by themselves, but, you know, teaching them, like, yo, you can do this for yourself. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. With the resources that, that are available to you. Absolutely. Now, without it being all got you journalism-esque, um, no, 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 no. This, what... Can you talk about managing expectations? You can actually use me as an example. I mean, I I would like to think that, you know, you've only had maybe two or three of those 4 a.m. Amir phone calls of what the fuck. All right. One one time I misread a price on a very, on a particular, or on a simple item, a mattress. On a W mattress? Well, I, okay. I graduated from the W mattress. Oh shit! Okay. No, Rich put me on to Hastings. <laughs> My Rich man put me Rich. on to Hastings mattresses, and they're extremely pricey. Google. The thing was, they saw me walking in the door. They must have thought I was a football player, played with the Giants or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> and you know, I came in bright. Like I will be the first to tell God you that. Damn. Shut up, Laya. Sorry, you got a king? Because I'm just looking at a queen and I'm like, God damn. Right. So they take what kind of what, what kind of what kind of mattress is this? Really go in the Hastings. When you go in the Hastings, <laughs> they have umlauts. They the they, okay. they okay. That's all you they're need supposed to, know. to they're supposed to you try one bed and I still feel like they lied. I feel like they lie to you and make that initial cheap bed so uber comfortable, then your mind's like Hey, let me try that one over there. What's that over there? And you're like, oh, that's just, uh, you know, maybe 200 more. And you get in that one, and then they got you. 
Then they're like, all right, let's go to the next Whoa. one. Let's go to the next one. These motherfuckers actually just brought me to the top of the line, Jorn. <laughs> mm-hmm. I didn't look at the price. Because again, Rich is like, yo, I think, I think you'll, you know, you'll have better circulation for your legs. And da-da-da-da. If you get this Hastings bed. So I got in the bed, fell asleep. <laughs> like you lay down for 10 minutes and, and then I say, Yeah, I fell asleep. Okay, great. I'll I'll take it. And here's my office number. And um, thanks. And I never looked at the price because you know, at that time, getting a W hotel bed was a big deal because W hotel beds <laughs> were like seventeen hundred bucks again, which was expensive for a W hotel bed. I didn't realize that I just purchased a six figure bed. Wow, it's just like a hundred thousand dollars. I didn't look at the price. What so, does it do? And this is the whole night. This is bed, like uh, framed, everything. It's, it's, well, it's just the mattress. Red. <laughs> Hastings has two dots over the egg. That's all you need to know. over the You get Bill. a visit Humphreys. every Monday. Yeah. <laughs> right. Again, what, uh, unpaid bill said the, that Hastings has two dots over the two egg. Dots. Like, the way that There's Jay-Z two dots. Like Jay-Z, like Jay had <laughs> in the beginning. <laughs> That's all you need to know. There's you a Uber go, over the A. You're going to get charged out the ass. <laughs> well, two- thank you, Bill. It's so, like a white person dots. There's like <laughs> shit. Like, whoa. Anyway, so cut to 8 o'clock in the morning the next day. Yo, you would have thought I ran everybody's mom over with the car. They're like, really? It's come to this now? Like, we... We give you an inch, and this is what it is. Like, did you get the what the fuck calling me? Like, come on, no, man. they they were. It was he. The thing was, is that he, Sean's had some other clients that he's not naming right now <laughs> that have done that shit. Like, you get your check and you want to ball the fuck out. And fifteen minutes into this curse out, I realized that oh shit, I just brought a one hundred thousand dollar bed. My bad, and. Of course, I got the price I can't afford or that they told me where my budget was. But the whole point was, how do you manage expectations? Because you are managing acts and dealing with their money. Post 2000, you know, it's way it's way past that baller stage. How are you? Are you having conversations with them at the top of of your business relationship? Will you tell them, like, if you color within these lines and live, you know, da-da-da-da-da, or, or is it just like you just get the advance money from, you know, Cincinnati, Ohio, and that's it. I'll see you later. Like, how do you manage I mean, expectations? managing expectations is, is one of the key things to being a manager, a successful manager in, in music. I'm sure it's in film and TV or, or in any sort of creative genre, right? You know? Because when you're dealing with creatives, and, and, I, and again, I didn't come in knowing this shit. Like, I've just learned it, you know, on the backs of my clients, like dealing with you and dealing with Tariq and dealing with Jill, you know, just understanding the motivational aspects, the, inst- the, the, the aspirational aspects that each of you have, what inspires you, what motivates you, um, what buttons can be push it's psychology right it's all psychology that's that's the most important part of being a manager that's the most important part of being in any relationship right is understanding the give and take of psychology so that's whether 
we're talking about a mattress or, you know, we're talking about, you know, damn, I wish Amir ended the show with this song versus that song. Like, how can I have this conversation with him knowing that this is his world and his Mm -hmm. baby, but I know I'm in the crowd and you know what I mean? So it's psychology, it's understanding the give and take, it's compromise. Like one, one lesson that I learned and Kanye taught me, and I've taken this throughout my career. Um, so again, this is, you know, 2006, I think, seven, whenever that year, whenever we started the Glow in the Dark tour. And again, I'm four years in with Kanye at this point. We've done three or four tours together. You know what I mean? We have a level of trust. He knows me, you know, meaning how I think. Um, so we're going on this, this, this big tour, biggest tour of his career, biggest tour of my career. You know what I mean? Um, and I go out and specifically go and hire the sort of logistics team. I put an all-star team together of people. He, he, he handled all his creative. I ain't touched none of his creative shit, but he allowed me, um, as did Wayne and others to like, all right, give me the team that's going to properly execute this. So I go out, I hire Curtis Battles, who number one is black. And number two is was Eminem's tour manager. And at that time, 2006, 2007, Eminem's on fire. He's on stadiums and shit. So I'm like, I got the top black tour uh, production manager. I bring in the tour manager. I bring in all of the tech teams. I'm hiring all of the logistics. He's dealing with the creative. At a certain point, I start calling people. I'm putting it together, my budgets, ah, going back and forth with the agent, you know, doing venue deals, calling the venues, arguing with them over, you know, our point. And everybody went dark on me. Like literally nobody would return my call. Curtis didn't return my call. Ye didn't return my call. Like nobody fucking returned my call. And I'm like, what is going on? And it was like a two week period. I'm in the middle of planning. I can't get any information. I'm calling, you know, Miss West, his mom. She's like, hey, Sean, nah, I don't know. Everything seemed cool to me. You want me to ask around? I'm like, nah, I'm not going to get you into it. Let me figure it out. After a two week period, Kanye calls me. He's like, yo, can you come to L.A. tomorrow? I'm like, yeah. You know, I fly to L.A., I go to his crib, sit in the living room. He's on his computer and he turns the computer around. And I'm like, what's this? And he's like, the tour. This is the creative. What do you think? And he walks me through it. And I'm like, yo, this shit is crazy. And I'm like, yo, but what the fuck? Like, how much does this cost? Like, I, I, I haven't talked to nobody. Like, how? And he was like, yo, I called everybody and said, if you talk to Sean G, you're fired. And I was like, I was like, why? I was like, why'd you do that? And he said, because I know if I wasn't able to get my full creative vision, mm. I would have talked to you along the way. You know, I would have made a left turn and I would not have been able to get my full creative vision out because you would have been, you know, asking me how much things cost and how are we going to move this? And blah, blah, blah. I got my full creative vision out now. Now tell me what you think about it and let's make adjustments. Now, and, and it taught me like that was a, 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 a really deep lesson on how to work and deal with creatives, because at the end of the day, y'all are the motherfucker, you know, Amir, Fonte, Tariq, you know, I mean? whoever it is, y'all are the ones that's driving this car. You know what I mean? I just got to sure live with it. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> I just got to make sure that it got gas in it. It got oil in it. And yeah. it ain't gonna, it's going to get to where it need to get to. And it ain't going to break down. And when you get yeah. there, you got some money in your pocket. Right. So if the show is me, whack, they're not going to holler at Sean G. Exactly, they're going to be yelling at me. <laughs> exactly. Or even if the show is good, 
and you weren't able to do what you wanted to do creatively, you're going to be unfulfilled. And who you, you going like to blame for that for being unfulfilled? You're going to blame Sean G. You know what I mean? You didn't let it out. So that lesson that I did with Kanye, that lesson that Kanye taught me, I've taken throughout my career on working with creatives. It is managing expectations, but it's also a balance in making sure that, look, I mean, that not that matches, but we could tell other stories of here where, you know, there have been <laughs> things that you needed or you wanted. And, you know, we talked about it and I'm like, you know what? This is what this motherfucker worked his ass off for. This is why he's up 23 hours a day to be able to do what I think is dumb shit, but it's aspirational shit for you. So I can't, I can't give, you know, I can't overlay my thoughts on, you know, your creative vision and what, you know, I just got to put the barriers up, both creatively, business-wise, money, whatever it is, I got to put the barriers up so you don't fall off the, the highway. You know what I mean? Uh, but you're driving the car. You know what I mean? Hey, Sean, can you tell us a time, like when it comes to the roots and Jill, what was the deal that you've made that really made you take a step back and like pat yourself on the shoulder or really go, fuck yes. Like I'm finally doing what I feel like is fulfilling them. And like, we, we done this shit. Nobody else has done this shit. Like this is fucking phenomenal. I don't think there's, I, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't think there's one deal. You okay. know what I mean? Like, I don't think there's, we, I, there's not like one big branding deal or one big, even, a, even, a, even the, the, the tonight show deal. Like, I don't think it's one okay. deal. What I get it, what I, you, you know, smile was about. The picnic. I thought. Um, no, I mean, even the Roots Picnic, we're not there. Like, the thing about the Roots is, the thing that keeps us going is we've never fucking arrived. Like, you know what I mean? Right, like, right. We've, it's never, never. We've, we've, we've never, like, arrived to whatever that mythical place is that you think you need to get to. We're, we're always motivated to either do more or diversify, you know, either, when I say do Right, more, but there still had to be a moment where you went, they didn't think we could do this, and we did that shit. Oh, okay, okay, got you. Um, for the Roots, it was the Roots Picnic New York. Okay. It was when we did, when we did, when we did uh, Bryant Park. Yeah. I, I, I literally stood at the back of the park. We were on with Wu-Tang, and, you know, I looked up in the sky, and, and I talked to Rich, and I was like, yo, look, look what the fuck we did. You know, because again, nah, for me, I remember that night, man. We talked that night. Uh, yeah. You know, we. I think I don't think Wu was on, but it was uh, somebody was on. But we was talking, and you was kind of giving me time. You was like, "Yeah, man, like this shit was work." Like NYPD yeah. was on. Like you was you was giving up. Yeah. You was talking. I was yeah. like, "Damn." So I remember that being a big yeah. moment for y'all. Yeah, Ruth Picnic, New York, was probably that that moment. It, you know, again, it wasn't a deal, but it was that moment mm-hmm. where it was like, "All right," you know what I mean? Like, okay. You know, we, we, we're there. Um, but again, I think, we, you know, overall, it's, it's the constant, it's the constant growth. Like it's the, it's the, what's the, what's the tortoise versus the hare mentality uh-huh. that we have that I'm happy when, I'm happy when Alicia Keys 20 years into her career makes a fucking song called Jill Scott. You know what I mean? I, like <laughs> that, that makes me happy because that shows all of the work that Jill put in and I was able to assist you know, it's being recognized. I'm happy when, you know, Questlove is DJing the Jay-Z and Beyonce Oscar party and killing it. Mm. You know what I mean? And everybody there is like, oh my God, I'm 25, 30 years in. Like, it's just a constant ascension of people that 
you know, over the years, everybody always turned their, you know, hey, who are these guys? Uh, what's up with her? The girl from Philly, uh, you know. But, so, you know, we, they, at the end of the day, as long as we constantly ascend creatively, as long as we diversify business-wise, and we can make sure that we follow our own dreams and every time we achieve a goal, reset and go for more goals, you know, it, it's going to work out. Okay, so I feel silly. Because as much traveling as I do, and as many Airbnbs that I stay in, because that's the only way I travel, I really have never considered my own space. I mean, think about it. What if you can make money for your next vacation while you're on vacation? And I know what you're thinking. You're like, my house is just not fancy enough. I just can't do the things. You're sleeping on your space. I'm sleeping on my space. Yes, I'm talking to myself. And I really don't even have to use my whole place. I could just Airbnb a room. I know how this works. Because again, I use Airbnb. Duh. I mean, just think about it. Most of us that use Airbnb are only using it for 50% of its power. We're spending the money, but we're not making the money. What if we could do both? Whoa, mind-blowing. And your home really might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right, so I guess for you and me personally, you know, 2014 was definitely a turning point mm-hmm. once uh, Richard died of uh, of leukemia. Yep. And, you know, I, I definitely was going out my mind during that time period. Um, and, you know, I realized that it was just, it was going to be a shift for all of us. You know, I was like, well, damn, like now, you know, any creative musical create like usually I always have rich to bounce off of and there's always that 8 a.m phone call that you have with rich which is weird because rich had 8 a.m phone calls with everyone so I'm trying to I figure had out an 8 a.m phone call every day with rich I don't know how he did that shit right exactly like in my <laughs> mind it's like rich wakes you up at like 8 17 8, and then you're off at 11 but everyone has Absolutely. the same Absolutely. and so what in my mind I was just like well shit like Sean's the suit 
to Rich's creative. Now Sean's going to have to be a creative and I'm going to have to do things that I hate doing like vocal takes and like sitting there patiently, like putting stuff together. So talk about the shift that, because I guess that's the period in which you made the decision to, I, I mean, at that point you were, you were, you were developing sports entertainment front mm-hmm. world SEF, SEFG. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You, yep. you had, uh, you know, uh, basketball players yet you, you were managing business, managing all these people. Can you talk about the transition from sort of amalgamating your, your company into Maverick, which then goes into live nation? Like how does yep. that? Yep. 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 Um, but before doing that, I want to talk about 2014 because okay. you're right. You know, at that moment, when we all realized that Rich was, was, was on his way out. Um, the first thing is Rich being Rich. I, you know, he was, he was prepping me for it. You know, Rich was prepping me for, for years. Um, just, you know, thinking back on it, just the conversations we were having and, 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 you know, shit that we were talking about and responsibilities that, were normally his and the creative side that he would be like asking my opinion. And I'm like, you really want, you want my opinion? You know what I mean? You know, mm-hmm. he, he would always say I was wrong when I gave my opinion, but he was just asking my opinion and things that, you know, the, what, which photo looked good. I'm like, you want my opinion on that? You know, but he was prepping me for 2014. Um, and I don't know if you remember, I had a conversation with you and Tariq. Um, you know, I said, look, I'm going to step up and do a lot of shit. You know what I mean? But I am not going to step into the shoes of Richard Nichols, you know, from a creative perspective, I can do a lot. You know, I can build this and, you know, tours and festivals and ideas and hire people to come build your dreams. I can't, I can't make records. I can't do vocal takes. I can't admit that's just not who I am. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you guys are going to have to step up as well. It's not just me stepping up. So you're going to have to step up because this is a big ass void that we both got to fill. And I think it is, it is that sort of combination of my growth and the two of you individually growing. That is the reason why, you know, six, seven, eight, hopefully 10, 15, 20 years after rich, you know, we're still sort of building, growing and thriving. Um, But as far as, you know, where I was business wise, I mean, it's funny because 2014, 2015 was the year that I sold um, my a portion of my quote unquote management business um, into Live Nation, into Maverick, you know, and and Live Nation was building this mega management company called Maverick, um, and Gael Siri was the head of it. Gael Siri, the manager of U2 and Madonna, he brought in Clarence Spalding, who was the manager of Jason Aldean and Rascal Flatts and Shania Twain. They brought in Adam and Larry. Um, Rudolph, who managed at the time uh, Miley Cyrus and Britney Spears. So you had um, all the black folks. Yeah, yeah, and and yeah. So at a certain <laughs> point, at a certain point, these were all the deals that were done. And I guess someone within Live Nation said, "You got a whole bunch of white men. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. You got white acts <laughs> like y'all." So they went after my partner G Roberson. Remember G Roberson from Kanye? Mm-hmm. I walked in. I yeah. met him with Kanye. They went after him. And said, okay, you manage Kanye West and you manage you manage uh Lil Wayne, like, you know, let's do a deal. Um, 
a little bit of a sidebar, all of these tour deals that I was doing, you know, Kanye, Wayne, Drake, Nikki, I was on the other side of the table from a company called Live Nation. So I was doing these deals from with Live Nation. So they knew me as the manager, the black dude that did all of the big black tours. Um, the guy who I was negotiating with on the other side was a gentleman by the name of Al Heyman. Huh. Al Heyman yeah, is Al oh, the yeah. most successful black concert promoter in the history of the game, bar mm-hmm. none. Yes. Um, and he since right now manages Floyd Mayweather, and he's the most successful boxing promoter in the history of the game, bigger than Don King and Bob Arum and all of them right now to this the day. Al- Oh, hey man, was he the one? Was he the one behind the the Budweiser? Budweiser Superfest. Wow. Patty LaBelle, Rick James, Michael yeah. Jackson. Like, wait, how you know, old is Al Heyman? Mary J. Blige. I mean, he's 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 the guy. So hey, Sean, I'm can you help us get him on the show? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so 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 yeah. I'm negotiating these big deals with Al. Al's on the other side of the table. Like, okay, this little motherfucker knows what he's talking about. You know what I mean? Because you know, he's like, I never dealt with a young black man who knows touring like you do. Um, so back to the Maverick thing, when Live Nation slash Maverick goes and tries to buy G. Roberson's company, Al Heyman tells Live Nation, well, G. Roberson is great, but this guy, Sean G. over here, he's the operator. You know what I mean? So if you're going to, because at this time, me, G. and Cortez had similar clients, but we had three different companies. He had hip hop since 1978. I had SEFG. Cortez had Bryant Management. So, you know, in order to sort of complete that purchase, they said, okay, we're going to buy G. Roberson's company. We're going to buy Cortez Bryant. We're going to buy Sean G. Because that is the machine that makes all of this work. And we're going to um, merge them together and then put them under Maverick. So that was that deal in 2015 where I brought. Yeah, they bought into my car. I sold half of my company to Live Nation. Aren't these um, interesting bedfellows, Sean? I'm sorry. I was just thinking, I was like, so you got management mixed in with live shows and produ- just production. I'm just thinking like Live Nation I mean, was really again, dip, 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 dipping. I, what do you mean? From a Live Nation perspective? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, shit, Michael Rapino is one of the smartest executives in the business. You know what I mean? For him, it, he calls it a flywheel. And for him, it is, you know, when he started, when he took over Live Nation, Live Nation was a bunch of individual regional promoters. Okay. You know what I mean? You had your guy in New York. You know what I mean? And he had his company. You had Electric Factory Concerts in Philly. You had Cellar Door Concerts. And these were just independent individual companies. What Rapino was able to do was merge all of these business. It was, it was actually Clear Channel prior to Rapino, but you know what came out of the Clear Channel um, divestiture was this merged entity of all of these individual regional promoters that created this one mega promoter business. But what a lot of people don't understand on the promoter side, from the live show, you, you don't make no money. You know what I mean? From a margin perspective, because the artist makes all the money. Right, right. You know what I mean? Okay. If I have Fonte come in performing, you know what I mean? And I do a deal with him. Ultimately, in success, he's going to walk out with 85, 90% of the, of the money. You know what I mean? Yeah. The promoter margins are 5 to 10%. So what, what Rapino did, which was intelligent, super, super genius, was he said, okay, I'm going to build a flywheel around the shows. I'm going to have shows which are the volume 
business, low margin, but volume, thousands upon thousands of shows, mm-hmm. but I'm going to have venues. And when you pay for parking and peanuts and popcorn, you know, at the shows, you know, I'm going to make money off that. I'm going to have media and sponsorship that sells sponsorship at the venues. I mean, so he built a, a flywheel of business. It sounds almost like McDonald's, like, you know, with yes. the famous McDonald's quote. Yes. He's like, I'm not in the hamburger business. I'm in the real estate business. I'm in the real estate <laughs> business. You know what I mean? Yeah. But the hamburgers is what bring you in, right? The shows That's are the thing that bring, that bring you in. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so, so, the, so to your point, like, uh, you know, it's your, your hand is in different areas, but it's all sort of a flywheel that works together. Um, and, you know, that, and, but again, I came in under the auspices of G. Roberson's partner. Um, and that was, that was Maverick Management. It's funny because I, t- I you know, I, 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 I kid Guy about this, but, you know, when I came in with The Roots and Joe Scott, we were like the folks that didn't belong. You know what I mean? Every artist was an arena artist. Every single artist in Maverick was an arena artist except The Roots and Joe Scott. But over time, you know, they start just like, you know, just like I said earlier, like over time, you know, the, the managers started to respect, you know, oh shit, The Roots. Yeah. Oh shit, Jill Scott. And, you know, they start calling like, hey, can I, can Chris Love come and help produce this? Or, you know, when I think the key, the, the, the pinnacle of that sort of disrespect at the beginning, but ultimately led to respect was when uh, U2 called and asked if the roots can open for them or, or no, if we, the roots can guest on their set at Madison Square Garden. And, you know, wow. they came out right in the middle of Madison Square oh, Garden. Shit, and U2 set. Of course you did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so, I mean, that was, that's how I got into Live Nation. It was through, you know, wait, hey, y'all need, y'all need some black managers and these are the three that you got to buy. Time out though. Jill uh, sells out Madison Square Garden, does she not? I mean, that's one of the like we have we have sold out Madison Square Garden, yes. Um, but you know, but I'm saying from that Neil Soul class of 2000, Jill, from the Neil, Jill, Erica, and Maxwell and Mary are probably the three, and 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 believe it or not, you know, Kim. Are probably the the the, the four five yes. strongest strongest <laughs> <laughs> from that. <laughs> you know, they were, they're no, the strongest touring acts. Mm, but even then, you know, if tickets are going on sale, not for nothing. Look, Erica is. You know, I've been down from day one, but Erica isn't going to sell out Madison Square Garden by herself, or maybe I mean, she will. Just, we we've never sold out by ourselves. It's it's all about strategic packaging. We sold it out with Maxwell. You know what I mean? Uh, Jill and Maxwell, we did two nights at Madison Square Garden together. All right. You so know, does, Maxwell, uh, does it Maxwell, have- Maxwell and Mary sold out Madison Square. So it's, it's about, strate- you know, part of part of the, the, the sugar strategy water. and touring is strategic packaging. Yeah, sugar we sold water. out amphitheaters with Sugar Water with Jill, Erica, and, and, and Latifah. You know, Erica sold out Barclays last year. It was Erica, Anthony Hamilton, and I forget who else it was. You know, again, strategic... The, the, the beauty about that, 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 that world is you can strategically package and one plus one can equal three or four. And that's where you get to 15, 16, 17,000. On their own, they're all probably like five, 6,000. But when, when you put them together, it becomes an event. Didn't that line of thought kind of lead to why there needs to be a Live Nation Urban? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, once I was in Live Nation, um, officially, you know, with the venture on management, I just, I just ear beat them. You know what I mean? I was like, yo, you know y'all not really fucking with black culture. 
you know, like at the end of the day, Live Nation at that point did big really well, meaning, you know, Drake blows up, he goes to arenas, mm-hmm. no one does big better than Live Nation. You know, Jay-Z, Beyonce doing stadiums, they do big very well. But incubating culture, building partnerships, building festivals that are curated for a specific audience, i.e. Black audience, they, they didn't do that at all. So after about a year of me airbeating, you know, the CEO and the chief strategy officer at the time, um, they, you know, gave me an opportunity and said, okay, cool. You want to do this? You know, you think there's an opportunity? You're an entrepreneur. We respect you. We already have a deal with you. Go build it. And so that, what did was, you build that was the bes- impetus. Besides the Roots Picnic, what did you build? Um, the first three deals I, that, that I did, um, the first deal was I uh, flew to Dallas. Um, I sat with a gentleman by the name of Kirk Franklin. And I said, Kurt, you are the Jay-Z of gospel music. Why don't you have your own event? Why don't you have your own festival? Why don't you have your own series? Mm-hmm. He said, because no one's ever asked me. So wow. we, that year, launched the Kirk Franklin Exodus Music and Arts Festival, which is the biggest, most successful gospel music festival in the country. Um, and, I, and I say gospel That's music festival because, I mean, Bishop Jakes has you know, the, the essence of gospel, but it's bigger than music. You know what I mean? It's, right. it's, it's everything. So he, his is much bigger, but you know, we've had every, you know, we've had, you know, all of the who's who of gospel has performed on it. And next year, this year we were supposed to, but next year we're going to expand it to it's in Dallas now, but we're going to expand it to multiple markets. So that was deal. Number one deal. Number two is, um, I called uh, a fellow Philadelphian by the name of Troy Carter, who was running Spotify at the time. Spotify had this playlist called Rap Caviar, which was driving Rap culture. Caviar, yeah. You know, I mean, at that point, Rap Caviar was what mix show DJs were to us um, back in the day, where it's like, this is how rap artists get broke. You know, you got to get on the Rap Caviar list. They had yeah. Troy, Troy was running the company, and, and uh, Tuma Basa, good friend of mine, was, was, he was Rap Caviar. He was the curator. So I went to them and said, you know, you are the new radio. And really the only self-sustaining profitable model in the radio space is radio shows. You know what I mean? The summer jams and the powerhouses. So let's build a live iteration of your playlist called Rap Caviar Live. So we built that 50-50 venture between me, uh, Live Nation Urban and Rap Caviar and, and Spotify. Um, and we took, built that music series. And the third deal that I did is I identified these two young brothers in DC that you know, had their finger on the pulse of culture, had like this mini sort of smallish festival um, that they did, did like seven, 8,000 people. And it was called Broccoli City Festival. Broccoli City. Yeah. And, you know, I came on my radar because as I was, as I booked the Roots Picnic every year, of course, I'm on my own shit. I'm like, I'm the best curator, you know what (laughs) I mean? In the the space, you know what I mean? And agents and artists started saying, well, I'll play the Roots Picnic. As long as I could play Broccoli City. So I went on a mission like, what the hell is Broccoli City? And I went and met with mm. the two brothers, uh, Marcus and Brandon, two really and Brandon, smart yeah. young brothers and uh, from North Carolina. Both are from, from Yes, from indeed. Cadillac. Yeah. Uh, yep, yep. Brandon, Brandon and, uh, from Greensboro. That's the homie. Yep. And, and, and I invested in them. You know what I mean? I didn't try to take over. I didn't try to make it Live Nation Urban Festival. I said, look, you guys got a vision. You got a finger on the pulse of culture. You know your audience. What I want to do is build, put, get, invest and build the infrastructure for you so that you can grow and scale. 
And we went from seven, 8,000 people to 35,000 people. I moved it to RFK Stadium yes. and built and grew. And this year, if we didn't go down, we probably would have had 50,000. It's the, it's the largest gathering of black millennials in the world. Because I'm, I'm the oldest person there by far. It's, it's 18 <laughs> to 30. Facts. 18 to 30. You know what I mean? Yeah, facts. Period. Um, and so that was, the third, that was the third thing. I mean, since then, I partnered with her. Uh, Gabby with the artist her we built a festival called lights on festival in the bay area um you know we've i've, I've taken a, a start producing the uh, miami jazz in the gardens festival and in in dc I, I do some you know smaller um emerging artist platforms you know oh, audio mac and others but damn Sean. those were the first three those were the first three deals that i did was, was, were those three can you explain how you build a festival from the ground up like mm-hmm. one of the one of the times where I dread the most as a Philadelphian is usually around March because that's when <laughs> everyone starts hitting me up like, yo, can I get on the Roots picnic? Can I get on? And I'm like, dog, we start building the yeah. Roots picnic two months yeah. after the Roots picnic, like August. Yep. Mm-hmm. So can you just explain what goes into building a festival? Like the calls you have to make, the... Like, is, this is done ahead of time. Is it, like, how do you, how hands-on is it for you? I mean, it, it, it never stops. It's 12 months a year. You know what I mean? Um, you know, if you talk about the Roots Picnic, if you talk about Broccoli City, if you talk about some of the, some of the events that we have, that, that, that I have, it, it, there, there's, a, there's a process to it where it goes from, like you said, ideation. You know, let's say a festival starts in the fall. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, a festival plays in the summer. Usually, you know, late summer is, you know, ideation. Sometimes, actually, ideation takes two or three years. You know what I mean? Like, for the Roots Picnic, most headliners, we've talked about two years prior. Like, we talked about Pharrell two years prior, and it mm-hmm. took us two years to lock in the deal. You know what I mean? Same thing mm-hmm. with, uh, with, with Usher. You know, and we talked about it. So, so, you know, that ideation process never stops. But, you know, it starts soon as the previous year ends. Then you go into the booking process because as the festival economy and market has gotten bigger, um, there's more competition in the space. When we first say, started yeah, the picnic, we, were, we were the only ones that were looking for sort of alternative, urban, black, R&B, hip hop. Like nobody else, was, there was no other options. So we could, you know, call and be like, What's up? You want to play it? But now, you know, between the sort of regular mega all things to all people festivals like the Bonnaroos and the, and Coachella, the Lulus yeah. that, yeah, that are that are now being tinted black um, between those and then the other, you know, sort of culture facing festivals. Now it's a lot of competition. So you start that booking process, you know, nine, 10, 11 months in advance. And you need to have, you know, I got a I got a team of young people that have their finger on the pulse of culture. As you know, Amir, I send out a group text to our entire team. Who y'all listening to? Who y'all want? Tariq, tell me who you want. Amir, tell me who you want. You know, Dawn, you know, anyone that's like, you know, out there, like, talk to me. Send me names. Send me videos. Send me clips. Because you almost have to be a, a, a predictor of what's going to be hot to, at two periods. A, when your tickets go on sale. And B, when you play. <laughs> And those are two different periods. <laughs> you know I mean? Probably those your two- funny story was nabbing uh, 
Uh, I'm gonna pass the things. What's his name? Uh, Macklemore. Macklemore. Yeah, we got Macklemore right in the nick of time of like. I mean, he's yeah, there's big a lot. Shit. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of stories like we got Kid Cudi. Like, you know what I mean? Super early. Weekend, like, you know, Nars Barkley. The weekend, Nars, Yeah, I mean, but again, that's a team. That's a team-based effort. It's not just showing G or Amir Thompson sitting in our rooms, you know, saying this is hot. It's a team-based effort of both official people, but then also, my, you know, the last three years, my son has booked four or five of these acts. You know, my 15-year-old, mm-hmm. I'd be like, Sean, who popping? He'd be like, oh, you got to get young boy. You got to get this person. You got to mm-hmm. get that person. You know what I mean? Because it's a balance. So now, speaking that, of that, sons, can you just, a quick call back, because we talked about your first son, but can you just yep. tell people what your, your first son is doing now? Oh, Darren? Yeah. Darren's a sports agent at CAA. There you go. Living your dreams. I'm just saying. Just moved to LA. Wow. Um, From a baby but, to having babies. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's a never, it's a nonstop process in there. It's just, you know, it, it never stops. Because once you book, then there's the marketing. You know what I mean? And you got to put the marketing plan together. You got to understand what the marketplace is saying. You got to understand how you hit your audience. You got to understand how to break through the clutter. You got to understand when other festivals are announcing. Um, and then, you know, once you get out of the marketing phase, hopefully you sell tickets quickly and then is execution. You know what I mean? You're, you're, tra- you're, you're transforming empty fields into concert venues, into experiences. So it's more than just the stage. It's the creative concept that goes along with how do you want these people to interact with all aspects of your site? Like, it's not just who you put on stage. It's who are your vendors? Where are you going to place your vendors? What are your prices? Who are your marketing partners, your brand partners? What are your activations? So, Sean, you know does I mean? all that go out the window now? Because uh... For 2020, I mean, hell yeah, for 2020. But nah, 2021, mm-hmm. we'll be back. You, okay, well, all right. Uh, so it's April. Nah, it, it's May. It's May of 2020. Like, how much gray hair are you getting during this period? Duh. Duh. Like, I mean, and, and you know, with the Ruse Picnic, how much work we put into that second day. Like, we had the first right. day, which we booked the shit out of. Because part of the strategy for us, and Amir has been driving this for years, is how do we get the roots out of the headlining slot? Because if we ever want this to be Lollapalooza, we need the roots to ultimately play the role of Jane's Addiction. You know, Perry Perry. You know what I mean? Like, how do we get the roots out of it. So we finally figured a way to get the roots out of the headlining slot while still keeping them in the festival. We were selling tickets like hotcakes on our one day festival. And we, Tariq, Amir, myself, um, we spent six months negotiating with Mrs. Michelle Obama to come and headline our day two. We were about to shock the world with that. So we finally had it deal done, putting together the creative and COVID hits. You know what I mean? And um, so it wasn't just the Roots Picnic. I had Broccoli City Festival sold out. It was sold Mm. out two months in advance. I had Miami Jazz in the Gardens that weekend in March when everything shut down, headlined by Mary J. Blige, Jill Scott, Mm. Anthony Hamilton, Charlie Wilson, Roots. No, the Roots and two live crew. Yo, we were we what? were we were we were better than <laughs> essence. We were better than essence that you know, but again, we had to stop. So I had a ton of festivals that got shut down and you know, shit, I was depressed, dog. Like I was fucked up. 
You know what I mean? Because I spent, I spent the first four to six weeks of COVID undoing my last 10 months of work. It's like building a house and you get to the front door. All you got to do is put the front door in and then the bulldozer comes and knocks it down. Knocking it down. He's like, fuck. You know what I mean? (laughs) I just spent eight, 10 months building this shit. So it was, it was super, super, you know, sort of depressing. You know, I was, I was depressed. I was upset. You know what I mean? I was, I was hurt. You know what I mean? It was all types of emotions. When that, that cha- when did it change? When did that change? When your spirits yeah, get so lifted? How did um, you- <laughs> I, I'll, I'll, I'll be real. Um, when we we dove in on, with the roots, we dove in on our on our YouTube page. You know, okay. we sort of we sort of rolled up our sleeves and 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 got creative and started. Oh, Questlove Supreme with Live ideas. did that for you. Questlove <laughs> Supreme Live. Questlove <laughs> DJ. You know everything that you know. Tariq's you know yeah. streams of thought interviews. Yeah. You know our our emerging artist platform. Like like we got the creativity is the thing that that sort of was like oh shit okay this isn't a time to be depressed. This is a time to roll up our sleeves and become entrepreneurs again. Like I <laughs> I talked to Tariq Amir Jill more during that period because you got to realize like we, it was like a well-oiled machine with my management client it was like okay we got tonight show i'm going to stay six months ahead of the guys you know what i mean i got an execution team keith mcphee tina ferris Munir. i got a team that handles the day-to-day my job is to stay six months ahead so that when we get there it's something there so it was sort of like a well-oiled machine what this did for us was it forced us to become entrepreneurial and creative again. And this shit's been fun as a motherfucker. Hmm. I'll be real with you. All right. So what does that future look like now? And I know people talk about, man, when we get back to normal, but, but it's like, it's still going to be different. So when, so, all right. So when, when, when the, the line finally gets flattened in the United States mm-hmm. and there's, we're COVID free. Um, am I still going to blah, blah, blah club to DJ, yada, 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 mm. you know, what do I do with the 30,000, you know, audience members that I've gotten on these six platforms, virtual DJing? Yep. Like, is that a monetary future? Like, how? Absolutely. I think, like, I think. Do you go think- back or do you stay the course the, the, we will never in, in in the live music space in the live entertainment space we will never return to february of 2020 okay thank that you. won't happen that won't ever happen again what does that mean what that means is like the live, way that the roots picnic looked when we last did it for the things fall apart 20th what would be different mm. i mean i i think live for will roots picnic 2022 live will return and live will return at scale I think that part of it is going to be driven by science and governance, you know, main, mainly science, meaning, you know, whether it's testing, vaccine, wh- whatever that ends up being, you know, you can't replicate the emotional connection of being in an audience and watching your favorite artist. And I think that will return. But I think the difference is, you know, COVID was the symptom, but what the live music industry is actually going through, it's not. COVID. It's a technological disruption. We're going through, this is the first true disruption of technology for live music. Recorded music went through it from LimeWire to Napster to that ended up, you know, that sort of 
six to eight year process of disruption ended up with Spotify, Apple Music, Tidal, where okay. we are now, right? And okay. if you guys remember, that was a really fucking uncomfortable time yeah. when, when Napster was in and live. People were like, the industry's gone. Record yeah. labels are never going to happen again. Why are we doing this? The, the, these consumers will never buy anything because they can trade files for free. Right. All of that. But what ended up happening was the industry embraced technology at the end of it. And the business is bigger than ever right now. And that's the same thing that's going to happen in live. What we're seeing with these live streaming platforms, what we're seeing with the consumer engagement, if you think about the level of digital engagement from music consumers, when, Fonte, if I told you you were going to be sitting on your fucking couch for two hours watching Patti LaBelle and Gladys Knight play music and enjoy oh. it, if I would have told you that in February, you'd have been like, what? Nigga, but, my my mo- my moment for that was versus was the primo and uh and RZA, and RZA. versus yeah. that was the moment yeah. where I was like, yo, the world has changed forever. Right. Like, but these but for, that for me engagement, to in my house watching two dudes Watch, play records yeah. in their house, and, 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 <laughs> and that's and the enjoy, most important thing in the world it, right now. And enjoying it and looking forward yeah. to it. So that level of consumer engagement, which probably would have taken a decade. For us to get there happened in six months. That's going to transition mm-hmm. out of COVID. And you're going to see cottage industries that become major, cottage companies that become major companies that are building companies around that digital distribution and digital engagement. That's not going to take live away. It's going to add on to the live economy. And you're going to now see a bigger industry. The pie is going to get bigger because now you have brick and mortar live. Remember Blockbuster and mm-hmm. H&M, I mean, uh, um, what's the, what's Tower Record? You, you'll have, you'll still have brick and mortar live. And now you got virtual now you're live too. Virtual live. Yeah. And together you're going to, in 2025, the live music industry is going to be two, three times the size that it is now, just like recorded music is bigger than it was, you know, oh. during the, during the LimeWire. It's what Erica yeah, did but it's the future. Be, but it's going to be a point, it's going to be a point of uncomfortable. It's That's about to say so. Two or three years where you're going to see big major players like Tower. You're going to see big major players that were the shit in 2019 and 20, in early 2020 in the live music industry. If they don't adapt, they're going to be gone. So, Sean, is what Erica did recently during the COVID, is that the future? The whole subscription live show thing? You think? The, 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 the beauty about it is I don't know the future. Right. And it's that's hard. when I say it's fun, right. I say it's fun <laughs> right. shit. That's the right. fun part. The fun part is we are in the wild, wild west with True. the live shit. Erica came out and said, fuck all of y'all platforms. <laughs> I'm going to build my own platform. Do now, own is, that, is that going to be is Is Erica going to end up being Spotify or is she going to end up being LimeWire? Mm. You know what I mean? I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like like Twitch. Twitch, mm. which is a, you know, a huge gaming platform, now has a music strategy. Are they going to end up being Spotify mm-hmm. or are they going to end up being Napster? I don't know. But that's the great part. And again, depending on how I came up in this, I always, and I, you know, in the mirror, I'm not just saying this because you're on the phone. I say it in meetings with CEOs and presidents. I'm a root. You know what I mean? I came in this game a root and we figured out how to make this shit work. We figured out how to make a 20 plus year, 30 plus year career off of one and a half hit songs. So when, it, when, it, when it's time, when it's time to roll up your sleeves. The nigga's the commercial right there. 
you know, when it's time to roll <laughs> up your sleeves and figure some shit out in a period of time where it's discord and everybody's confused, you know, some people are going to fall off the wayside. I'm having fun. I'm coming up with ideas, creativity. Let's figure this shit. Amir, why don't you DJ and you know from your barn in in New York? You know, Tariq, why don't you? It's this is the part like here that is fun because mm-hmm. I don't, you don't know what the future is, but you do know it's not going to be where we were in February 2020. True, and you get to create it. We're essentially creating the future now. Like Absolutely, and the, and the winner might be some kid that's sitting in you know, his bedroom homeschooling right now. Like he might be the next Steve Jobs or the next, you know what I mean? It, might, it ain't right. going to be somebody that's the CEO or somebody that's the president right now. It's going to be some kid that's sitting at True. home doing virtual school right now. And it's going to come up with the answer. All right, man. Did I, I just hope, did he, I, I just hope he a Roots fan. <laughs> <laughs> Whoever he is, I just hope he a fan of the Roots. So did I, uh, well, wait, I forgot. There's one thing that we forgot to mention. What? You also going to a foray of developing with 215 Entertainment. Uh-huh. Um, you know, actually, like, what what is... I, I find myself trying to step away from platforms and get less and less jobs. But now that I'm listening to this story, you're actually Questlow. Like, <laughs> w- just between Live Nation... 215 Entertainment, us developing these these movies, these plays, these television shows. I mean, at what point are you going to Shep Gordon the thing and just be like, all right, Alice Cooper, let's just ride off into the sunset and, you know, do hmm. you have do you have a master plan written out in which you just like, all right, I'm cool. Or you let your son take over or... Mm. Mm. For me, is he about- Is he on that level yet where it's like, which, which, which I, it, on the music side, you know, yeah, like, um, it's my, it's, it's Sean, it's my 15 year old. Like he's, going, oh. he's, he's, he's built for this. Like he's Sean? built for this. He's telling, yes, he's telling me about, you know, this person doing this bundle and, you know, how it's super creative Jesus. because everybody's bundling with their t shirts, but he bundled with this and that. And, you know, we look at the numbers, look at the streams. He's, he's not, and not, not a proactive thing for me teaching him. He's just, I see it. I smell it. Like Darren, I smell sports. Like Darren wasn't into music and this, my business. He took what he learned from me, what he saw. He took my hustle and my grind and applied it to his passion. You know what I mean? Sean is absolutely built for this music game. Like that's, that's, that. you know, I see it. I'm like, all right, dude, I'm going to be working for you soon. You know what I mean? But yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't have a, I don't, you know, I don't have an exit plan, meaning exit plan from a, you know, I'm going to go get my house in Hawaii mm-hmm. and be chilling. Like for me, it's about passion. Like if you, all the things I'm involved in is because I'm passionate about it. Like there are clients that have fired me, you know, like I said earlier, because I sort of worked myself out of a job. There are clients that I fired. Like if I don't fucking wake up and am inspired by you or, you know, every day isn't going to be inspiration. Some days I wake up and be like, man, what the fuck? I'm there. Come on, dog. All right. Or so when's the up. first phone call start? <laughs> like, when's the first, like, when does your phone start ringing? Obviously, you have a rule in the house that no more phone calls after blah, blah, blah count because I could be in prison somewhere and I know you ain't going to pick up the phone. So. <laughs> 
Well, that's part of that's part of hiring a team. Like if mm-hmm. you call Munir, he gonna pick it up. <laughs> but but fifteen years but fifteen years ago, I was that dude that picked up that phone. You know, what right? I mean? like, damn right. You know, I was the one riding up when somebody got locked up. But now, you know, that's part of growth. It's like, all right, y'all do that. But um, it's funny. My phone calls. I, I you know now that I live in LA, I, I usually start my phone calls around seven. Um, but when I'm being creative and my, my team, you know, always jokes to me, sometimes that last email comes from me at three or four in the morning. Like my, my mind, as I've grown in this business, my mind has started to work more like an artist and less like a suit. Like I know y'all always used to say like, you know, creativity don't start until after midnight. And I'd be like, what y'all talking about? Like you got to sleep. But as I've gotten older, that's when my creative ideas come because during the day, you know, I'm doing phone calls and zooms and shit like that. So I'm able to think at night. You got to so, wait till everybody else is asleep so you can really exactly, hear yourself. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, my, 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 my day usually starts at seven, you know, seven, seven thirty with calls and, you know, especially during COVID, I'm able to work from home. So I, you know, between calls and my kids, you know, the balance is good. I see. All right. Well, I'll be hitting you about, uh, <laughs> Adding more acres to my property. And oh farm. shit! <laughs> hey, you gotta battle Jeff. <laughs> more, more acres, more acres. Oh no, nah, no! Nah. I'm about to sun Jeff in a second, and oh, I love him, Jeff. Shit. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> no man. I, th- I think you know some. I I had to learn some shit, and you know we've been we've been business partners for what twenty plus years already. Yeah. Oh, we should yeah. definitely name this episode the lesson. Like, there's there's some lessons in here. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, Sean G, thank you. I'll be bugging you later tonight. Oh, good. Well, make sure y'all send me that edit because you know I ain't signed that, so I can date Chappelle y'all anytime. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for mentioning that, Sean. Let us never forget about the fuckery of Dave Chappelle. Yes. <laughs> you Shots go. Fine. Anyway. All right. Yeah, we'll be and, I just, hey, and I'm so. Uh, go, Sean, I told you this before. I told both you and Amir this, but um, it really is inspirational just to watch and see what y'all brothers have built over these decades, man. And um, you know, and I just thank you for the opportunity, you know, for bringing me into this. And uh, uh you know, you hit me and was just like, "Hey, man, Amir's doing this thing. You want in?" And I was just like, "All right, <laughs> I mean, you know what the fuck this shit was gonna be." <laughs> but um, but you know, I just uh, I just you know admire the work ethic and the hustle, and you know, for I know how hard it is to build something on your own, so. I just want to just, you know, salute you, man, and just give you flowers and just Hell say that, you yeah, know. Hell yeah, Sean. We appreciate it. I mean, not for nothing. Definitely we, appreciate it. We all have our own Sean G stories. I wouldn't have got my own radio show back in Philly like 15 years ago if Kobe Cole wouldn't have asked Sean G, who is the host <laughs> for this show? So Wait, we, what? Yes, that's how I got Sunday Morning Soul because Kobe was on the really? phone with Sean. And he was like, I want to do this specialty show about soul. And Sean, he was like, who'd be a good host, right? Isn't that how it happened, Sean? Yeah, yeah, and that's, yeah, yeah. yeah. Damn, I didn't know that. Like, yeah, I thought, you know. You... Oh, me and Sean had many a morning conversations <laughs> on the way to work and stuff like that. Like, it was a bill he for us, too. You. Okay. Yes. And he finally told me when I was able to have my allowance to buy my weed, which was also very exciting. <laughs> I remember the day when he said, Laia, you can now put some money aside weekly for weed. Thank you, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> and your Hastings bed. Oh, <laughs> I, I regret telling that story because now you no, that was great. let it down. No, that's great. I'm not going to stop talking about your Hastings bed. Exactly. So we're clear. I would have loved for you to say I took it with back, a, but that's fine. With the two dots. <laughs> no, I did take it back. Okay, because you okay, good. All right. Dude, Sean, this this yeah. has been the more a more informative episode. I already learned from Alan Weeds that managers aren't gonna do the tell-all shit 
on the fuckery. So, you know, I, I feel that this show was effective enough without talking about, you know, artist fuckery that is going down. Yes. It, and it wouldn't serve the episode. But and a great way to build no, our no, roots. No, I, I never say this enough. Audio doc. Like, you, you definitely take on the gray hair that uh, I've successfully avoided right now. <laughs> yeah, and I have a lot of it. I have yeah, a lot I was about of to it. Say, anytime I see my 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 barometer for how my life is going is based on how much gray hair Sean G has right yeah, now. Absolutely. I'm like, all right, all right, all right. It's a good month. I'm gonna make it. Um, a good month. <laughs> all right. Well, on behalf of uh, the, the team, Sugar Steve, uh, we still uh, feel like Kustine right now. Umlaut, baby, umlaut. Yes, yes. I see you. I see you. <laughs> I'm Faye Bill. And Fire Tigolo and Laia. Thank you, Sean G. Uh, this is Questlove signing off. We will see you next week on the next go round of Questlove Supreme. Thank you. Yo, what's up? This is Fonte. Make sure you keep up with us on Instagram at QLS and let us know what you think and who should be next to sit down with us. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. All right? Peace. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, Cheap Caribbean Vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Hyatt Ziva Riviera Cancun at CheapCaribbean.com. That's CheapCaribbean.com. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-errands pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies.